It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino at chumbacasino.com. Choose from hundreds of social casino-style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to blacktalkradionetwork.com, helping you filter through the noise. Real talk, black talk. Time to play the puzzle. Joining us is Will Shorts. He's puzzle editor of the New York Times and Weekend Edition's Puzzle Master. Hi, Will. Hey there, Lulu. Remind us of last week's challenge. Yes, it came from listener Greg Van Mechelen of Berkeley, California. I said, take the name of a famous actor, four letters in the first name, five letters in the last, spoonerize it, that is, interchange the initial consonant sounds of the first and last names, and the result will be two new, familiar first names, one male, one female, that start with the same letter, but that letter is pronounced differently in the two names. Who's the actor? Well, the actor is John Wayne. Spoonerize that, and you get Juan Jane, both starting with J, but... Those J's are pronounced differently. We received nearly 450 correct responses, and the winner is Larry Otten of Sheridan, Oregon. But he joins us today from Juneau, Alaska. Congratulations. Well, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. So what exactly are you doing in Alaska? I'm a medevac pilot, and I'm pulling shifts up here away from home, away from my home in Oregon for a few weeks at a time. So um, I assume you're joining us from the hangar you're stationed in? That's right, and so I'll apologize for any background noises that may come up, but that's the most isolated place I can find at this time. No, I understand. And also, um, you might have to leave at any minute, right? <laughs> that's correct. Yeah, we, we live an on-call life, much like fire department folks. Yeah, so uh, we're going to try and get this show on the road so that you'll have time to play the puzzle. Uh, Will, take it away. Make it, make it snappy. All right, Larry, I'm going to read you some sentences. Each sentence conceals the name of a state capital in consecutive letters. You name the capitals. For example, if I said, check the chart for details, you would say Hartford, as in Hartford, Connecticut, and Hartford is hidden inside the words chart for details. Okay, sounds like we can have some embarrassing fun with this one. (laughs) (laughs) Number one, you can't rent only one trailer. You can't rent only one trailer. Uh, And look inside the words can't rent only. Yeah, Trenton, New Jersey. That's it, Trenton, New Jersey. You got it. Number two, how does golf rank for television? How does golf rank for television? Uh, Frankfurt. Frankfurt, Kentucky. Good. That's not too pleasant a feeling. That's not too pleasant a feeling. Uh, 
And look inside, pleasant a feeling. Yeah, Santa Fe, New Mexico, sorry about that Santa Fe, New Mexico, good. Dad prepared flapjacks once. Dad prepared flapjacks once. I had to write them out and see them at the same time. Uh, Jackson. That's it, Jackson, Mississippi, good. The numeral eight comes before nine. The numeral eight comes before nine. Uh, again, as I sit here and write them out, embarrassingly slow. Sorry. Uh, You're doing fine. Look inside numeral eight. Yeah, looking for that one. And Raleigh. Raleigh. Raleigh, North Carolina. We fly to Zurich Monday. We fly to Zurich Monday. Uh, Richmond. Richmond, Virginia. Are you and Eric on cordial terms? Are you and Eric on cordial terms? Concord. And here's your last one. I want to polish off dinner. And wanna is W-A-N-N-A. I want to polish off dinner. Annapolis. I'm sorry, Annapolis. Annapolis, Maryland. Yeah. Good job. Good job. How do you feel? I feel slow and floppy and embarrassingly happy. It's always good. <laughs> Embarrassingly happy. Those two words should go together. That's quite the combination. Yeah, you should just feel happy. You did really, really well. And for playing our puzzle today, you'll get a weekend edition lapel pin as well as puzzle books and games. You can read all about it at npr.org slash puzzle. And Larry, which member station do you listen to? Uh, KOPB out of Portland, Oregon. And I'd like to say hello to my lovely wife, Alice, who's down in Oregon and 1,200 miles away from me right now. Context of white supremacy. Gus T. Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Wednesday, September 30th. 2020 so I have been told I think we had Dr. Tyler Perry on the program at the end of July we talked about uh, the hounds of slavery white supremacy right remember all that very important information right in the middle of us reading white dog and I said wow we had Steve Harvey and Snoop Dogg together in an introductory uh, segment like that is amazing. I don't know if we'll ever have and Denzel Washington. We'll probably never have anything like that again. Big L in an introductory segment. Probably never have that again. But I thought his song Ebonics would be fitting for our discussion today. As was Sunday Puzzle. We'll explain all that and make it crystal as we proceed the book club will be here tomorrow, Thursday, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Cased Isabel Wilkerson's The Origins of Our Discontents. Uh, fourth session. Haven't gotten too far in the book, but very important book. Some of the similar themes talking about language and the words we use as we talk about these issues. Uh, our guest for today's broadcast Uh, She did a report on St. Louis Public Radio uh, earlier this summer. And the only reason I listen to St. Louis Public Radio is because of Michael Brown Jr. 
six years later, I still daily listen to St. Louis Public Radio because of Michael Brown Jr. Anywho, so I'm listening and they have our guest on for today's program and she's talking about language, language and racism, white supremacy uh, and specifically how sometimes the way that non-white people speak will be stigmatized. Non-white people will be mistreated because we don't speak, as they say, the king's English. And I thought, wow, don't we spend a lot of time on this broadcast talking about words, correct use of words, and just how words uphold the system of white supremacy racism. Said, wow, it would be grand to have her as a guest on the program. Uh, She is a professor at Missouri University of Science and Technology, a Ph.D. linguist like I am super uh, excited for today's program. I think I've said pretty consistently words, myself and others, words, a critical component of the system of white supremacy. It's been my experience. White people who study language oftentimes have a very keen understanding of white supremacy racism. I guess one illustration would be Dr. Jane Hill. Uh, She was on the program 2012. We talked about her book, similar topic, things about talking about racism and examining how language language upholds racism. Uh, Another example, Dr. Martin Kevorkian, he's been on the program many, many times over the years. University of Texas, Austin, admitted white supremacist, Ph.D. in English. He offers a lot of really critical insight and just being mindful about the words we use. Super excited to chat it up with our guest for today's broadcast. Uh, Joining us live, Dr. Sarah Hercula. Dr. Hercula, are you with us? I am. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for sharing a bit of your Wednesday evening. We're uh, excited to chat it up uh, for our listeners. Uh, if you can kind of give them an idea of the work that you do, your research interests uh, at Missouri University of Science and Technology. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I research what is called in linguistics language variation. So the different ways that people speak, particularly I study the different ways that people speak English and specifically here in the United States. So I look at um, what that variation looks like, what those features are, whether those are pronunciation features or differences in grammar, differences in word usage. And then I look at how people are perceived based on those differences. So I'm really interested in studying people's attitudes toward that variation and um, and how people develop those attitudes and how we can work on improving those attitudes toward people who speak languages and who speak varieties of languages that aren't um, very, very uh, highly privileged uh, in general in society. So I'm really interested in looking at how those attitudes develop and then how we can Um, help to correct misconceptions about language variation and about language diversity um, in order to promote a more equal and just society when it comes to language. Awesome. We will unpack some of that during the course of the broadcast. Uh, For listeners who have not seen either pictures or some of the video content online, you are a white woman. Is that correct? I am white. Yes. Okay. Uh, For this program, and I say this at the outset, 
uh, one of my conclusions, one of the ways that white people practice racism, white supremacy, they do a lot of pussyfooting when it comes to talking about racism, white supremacy in an accurate, honest manner. Uh, they will not describe things in a correct manner, deliberately so. They will use terms without giving them an accurate definition. Uh, they will do a lot mm-hmm. of talking around the subject matter and out and out lying. I mean, this this obfuscation takes a lot of different forms. But the main point is white people pussyfooting, not speaking accurately directly about racism white supremacy uh do you think also that that is a widespread problem in terms of white people and one of the ways white people practice racism do you think that's accurate absolutely i think that's accurate i think um and that's why in my research um something that i've taken on is is actually um, focusing my research on how to best educate white people in particular about these issues um, there have been a lot of there's been a ton of research research in my field about the issue of linguistic inequality and, and about linguistic discrimination and its negative impact. And so when I as as someone who's um, relatively new in the field, I'm in my fifth year as a professor, um, I came into the conversation and said, so how can I influence it? What can my sphere of influence be? Um, and and I decided that one of the things I would take up in my research and in my teaching is to try to best correct these misconceptions among white people, because racism and linguistic discrimination uh, as, as a part of racism are not going to go away until everyone is educated about the importance of these issues and until we work on breaking down the systems that uphold racism and linguistic discrimination. So I take it as a personal um, a personal challenge of mine to figure out how to bring white people along in these conversations, because I think that you're right. I think that, that all too often we see people um, putting the burden of solving, if you want, uh, racism onto black folks and African-Americans. And that's not, uh, that's not the way I think it should be. And so I've been working to try to fix that um, in, in the, in the research that I do and in the teaching that I do. Grand. Okay. At least with the obfuscation point, I request anytime we have a, a white person on the program, uh, if they can resist that urge to obfuscate, if they can be as accurate, honest as possible in speaking with us uh, through the course of the evening, listeners' questions, my questions, that would be super helpful. Uh, definitions. Woo. That is a major component of what I just said. They'll use terms and not give them a definition, not give them an accurate definition. Mm-hmm. Uh, racism, white supremacy. I use those terms as synonyms, and I use the same definition for both terms. The definition I use mm-hmm. is as follows. A global system of people who classify themselves as white and are dedicated to abusing and or subjugating everyone in the known universe whom they classify as not white. Do you think that definition is accurate? Do you think such a system exists? Absolutely. I, I agree with your, with your definition and I certainly, um, I certainly benefit from that system that you're talking about as a white woman. 
Um, and, and, um, and, and I will seek and endeavor and, and do always in, in my research and in my work to try not to, as you say, obfuscate and to talk directly about the impact of these issues, um, even knowing that I'm not a part of the, of the community that it impacts and knowing that I am a part of the community that it benefits. Um, yet, of course, I'm still, as, as, as I think you probably know from inviting me on your program, I'm someone who's dedicated to trying to break down that system. Grand. Okay. Uh, and what you uh, just shared, that P word, I never used the word privilege on this program. I attended the hmm. white privilege conference. They were not talking about racism, white supremacy frequently. We were talking about privilege. And in fact, the obfuscation got so grand the head, the founder of the White Privilege Conference told me explicitly, like looked me in my eyeballs and told me explicitly, this conference is about discussing, looking for solutions to the system of white supremacy. We would get into workshops led by white people and it would be OK as a black male. Let's hear how you have privilege because you're tall mm-hmm. and how you have privilege because you are 25 or you have privilege mm-hmm. because you have a job or you have two functioning feet. Like, wait a minute. Mm-hmm. We were supposed to be talking. So there are many reasons. I never use the word privilege. And I'll give you another. We had Dr. Peggy McIntosh who authored the invisible knapsack and all of that about Mm -hmm. white privilege and band-aids and rubbish. Talk about obfuscation. She wrote another Mm -hmm. report. People act like she wrote one report and that's it. She's been alive for decades and has written many reports in a separate report. She said one thing white people can do to combat this problem is to use the term white supremacy then she came on this program and refused to use the term white supremacy and exclusively used Mm -hmm. white privilege so when i ask this question in fact i'll give a quote this is from your uh, book chapter race gender and the structural inquiry of stigmatized english's approach we'll unpack that later i'm just getting to this right now a good starting place Mm -hmm. is to recognize and use one's own experiences and background as a model in the classroom i am open with my students about my ongoing process of identifying my biases and confronting my privilege for example as i discuss in chapter four each time i enact the sise approach i share with students the story of my entrance into the field of linguistics and the study of African-American English in particular, which is rooted in my failure to recognize and properly address my linguistic privilege and the linguistic and cultural differences between my students and me when I taught at the high school level. Important paragraph, great framing. In fact, you can even unpack that a little more if you want. But I read that to preface. My question is, we hear we've had many, many white people over the decade plus that we've been on air that share with us how they have privilege and benefit from the system of white supremacy. It's very difficult to find a white person who shares, oh, these are ways that I have and or do practice white supremacy racism that's the more important Mm -hmm. word so are there ways you can share with us that you practice white supremacy racism 
Yeah, thanks for asking that question. Um, it's an important one. What I share in my book and what I talk about with my with my students is um, my experience right after I graduated um, from uh, my undergraduate program. I got a job. I was pr- trained as a teacher, and so I got a job teaching 10th grade English uh, in a, at a school district in Michigan. Um, and the speakers of uh, the, the students I was teaching were speakers of a dialect that I now study, sometimes called African-American English, sometimes called Ebonics, sometimes called Black English. It goes by different names, but it's been very well studied by linguists in my field. Um, and, and I now am someone who studies that dialect myself. But at the time, I had not been trained on how to, um, on the dialect, on language diversity. I didn't know a lot about how to best teach students who came from different cultural and linguistic backgrounds from myself. And I, um, and I, I talk about in my book, and I've talked about many times with many people who will ask, I failed my students that year because of white supremacy and because of racism, because I had been trained to believe that the only right way to talk and the only right way right and my students did not talk and speak in that way and or, or write in that way and um and my whole goal that whole year was to try to get them closer to the whiter way instead of what i now would do if i were in that situation honoring their home cultural and linguistic backgrounds and attempting to bring those into the classroom um so that year was a was a very uh, steep learning curve for me and i can say right now that a lot of what i did in the classroom that year was rooted in white supremacy and racism and that was a learning experience for me and something that deeply impacted me as a teacher and as a person and honestly led me into the study that i do now with language and with racism and and with linguistic discrimination so, um, I, and I could give you plenty more examples of, of ways that, that daily I, I enact, you know, racism and white supremacy, despite my ongoing work with anti-racism and with working on not engaging in those kinds of behaviors. So, um, none of us are, are exempt from this system, and, and those of us who are white do live into it and benefit from it, whether we want to or not. And so, it's an important ongoing struggle of mine and of of many of the white people who I work with to, to educate ourselves and to continue. It'll be, you know, a lifelong experience of, of continuing to, to work on our own, um, our own behaviors and our own um, biases. Context of white supremacy, Dr. Sarah Hercula. Uh, Let's see. I have asked this question uh, anytime we have a white person on the program. Much obliged for your response. We'll unpack more as we go. Uh, I've asked this question anytime we have a white person on the broadcast. Uh, there was a non-white author. Uh, he wrote a report. It was addressing racism uh, and racism specifically in the publishing industry. Whew. I can't, can't let that slide. Just pause one second for listeners. I know where I'm at this time, but man, we just did a whole segment last week on homeschooling. And I think for years when people say the man, they talk about racism, white supremacy, and it's white men, it's white men, it's white men. And I said, you cannot have a system of white supremacy racism without racist woman, racist mm-hmm. man racist child this has got to be a team collective effort from white people one of the first most important examples i go to is what she just said that is the bulk of who is teaching your children white women 
So how common is that experience in the classroom for non-white students, especially black students, what she just shared? Can't minimize, can't minimize. So the question uh, I've asked most white people, non-white author, he wrote, uh, white people are often sincerely and greatly pained by racism, but rarely are they pained enough. I've been asking white guests the first portion of that sentence. Do you think just you are a white woman, your family, white people that you've been around, your studies, uh, just your view? Do you think that a substantial number of white people are often sincerely and greatly pained by racism? Do you think that's true? I don't think that they are pained enough. I think that that quotation is spot on. Um, when, when we are all ingrained into a system of white supremacy, white people are often not taught to question their place in that. Um, and when someone is made aware, when someone is taught to question their place in that, it's, it's, a, it's an experience that can be accompanied by a lot of different emotions for white people. And because of that, and emotions of guilt and shame and those kinds of things. And because of that, I don't think a lot of white people like to look it in the face. I think they like to pretend it's not there. They like to, you know, even people who claim they're woke, right? They don't, they don't seem to have a, a very um, strong commitment to actual anti-racist um, activity, right? Uh, attending trainings or um, reading books, uh, buying books by black authors, um, you know, doing the work that it actually takes that um, that would express the amount by which they are pained by racism. So, um, so I think that the, I think that there's tons more work to do, and I think that the the author of that quotation is spot on: pained but not pained enough. Okay, that did not answer my question. That's the type of thing that I point to when I speak to white people, and they don't answer questions like. That is hugely significant. Um, That is one of the ways I've concluded white people deliberately practice racism, not answering non-white people's questions. So I'll ask again, my question, just the first portion of the sentence, white people are often sincerely and greatly pained by racism based on your time around white people, your conclusion do you think that that is true, that a substantial number of white people are often sincerely and greatly pained by racism? I apologize that you don't think I answered your question. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to wrap my mind around exactly what you're asking. Um, I don't I think that there are many, many, many white people, probably the vast majority of white people that walk through the world without being pained by racism. Um, they they benefit from white supremacy and therefore are, don't question it. So, um, no, I don't. I mean, I think that there are people who, who understand the impact of racism and yet ignore it and therefore aren't pained by it. Um, is that what you're looking for? Is that, I mean, have I answered your question adequately now? So, well, let's try it this way. So if you had to answer this as a yes or a no, do you think that a substantial number of white people are often sincerely and greatly pained by racism? Yes, no. I will say no. 
Okay. Just for listeners, that t- we've had I've been asking that question for more than five years at this point. I'll even share one. The only reason I've been asking that question for listeners for five years, that's like my jab, right? That's not a big power punch for doctors. I just try to gauge to see how honest a white person is going to be because that's not a tough question. That's not asking you to out your parents as a racist or family members as a racist. It's pretty simple. And if it takes a lot of work, they don't answer. You have to ask that a lot of times. Like, man, how serious is this white person about being honest? honest revealing truth moving forward i am super or was super excited still super excited um getting to talk to a linguist as i said these are white people who study in fact i can even pause the introduction for the program today is from sunday puzzle that is a weekly segment on npr i listen every sunday and it's similar it'll be different you know puzzles each week but it's always word games word puzzles and things and that seems to be a crucial component of white culture even before we had wi-fi and all the rest of it they had crossword puzzles or long time fun boggle scrabble the anagrams like huge important component it seems to be in terms of white culture uh let me ask because we have a linguist what what are your thoughts on that are these type of word games and things does that seem to be an important aspect of white culture i think probably um yeah a, a, a lot of word games are based in kind of um the if i can say the prescriptive rules and by that i mean the, the rules of language that are associated with white ways of speaking and uh, writing um, of standard ways, if you want to word it that way, but it's really white ways, right? Modeled on um, the way that language was originally the way, if we want to talk English, the way that English was originally shaped in the 17th and 18th century was by white wealthy uh, landowning men. Right. And that history has shaped the English language since then. Um, since the, those initial writings of those grammar books and those dictionaries in the 17th and 18th centuries. So a lot of the word games um, that I still hear on NPR or that I see people play are based and steeped in that history of that kind of um, standardization around white ways of speaking and writing um, that, that still exist and that still shape people's perceptions of English today. And so I think, um, I think there is a correlation there. Um, again, given that a lot of those games rely on kind of um, white ways of using and, um, and and understanding language. That I agree completely. Uh, it seems just particularly a lot of the more intricate, like if you listen to Sunday, like spoonerize. Had you heard that term before when you spoon, they spoonerized John Wayne's talk about steeped in white culture uh they were just talking about changing the Mm -hmm. airport in california like maybe we shouldn't have john wayne airport maybe we should pick a different person and i don't i think it's still john wayne airport they didn't even but anyway they spoonerized his name i don't even know what that means do you know what that means to spoonerize a word yeah that's a term in linguistics Uh, a spoonerism is that that process of taking the initial sounds of two words and um, and switching them. So, and we all do it actually when we speak, um, when we're speaking quickly. So like, if you ever heard someone say like, check the stairs instead of stack the stairs, 
that's a spoonerism. Um, so it's used in kind of a, a sort of pedantic kind of way in that puzzle that you illustrated, but it's actually a pretty common linguistic process that all speakers engage in. Spoonerism, is that term uh, named after a white man who, who came up with that phrase or... I can't remember the origin of the term, but I believe that it comes from, yes, a, a, um, a white character on a television show who often did it. And then the, and then the term was, was based on that. I don't know if it was their name or something like that. But, yeah, it comes from some kind of, of, of root of that nature. Fascinating. Um, the, uh, in terms of your field, you have a, a doctorate. Uh, in linguistics, uh, can you share with us, like, how many, to your memory, how many non-white students and or professors you encountered along the way of getting your doctorate? Um, I So I um, got my Ph.D. at Illinois State University, um, and uh, the program that I actually have a, a degree in is called English Studies, um, and I had a, a strong uh, specialization in linguistics. Um, and I do, of course, all of my research and teaching now in linguistics. Um, but there were many students in different aspects of that program who were um, international students, some non-white students, um, and and a couple of and a couple of my professors were non-white, um, some of them being international, um, international uh, people originally, right, um, immigrants to the United States. Um, but I would say in terms of um, African-American or black um, students and professors, very few. Um, I think I had two classmates in my class um, who were, who would identify as either African-American or black. And I believe I had one professor um, in my particular program who was. Wow, that's, I'm not surprised. We had uh, Dr. Jeremy Hoffman was a guest on the program Tuesday, uh, Monday, excuse me, Monday, and he got a PhD in geology. And he, I don't mm-hmm. even think he had the international uh, student component. I think he said it was pretty white, mm-hmm. which I expected uh, for geology, but it was very similar system of racism, white supremacy, no accidents. Uh, let's see. Before we kind of get into your work, because I wanted to get a kind of breakdown of what the term structural inquiry of stigmatized English is, so listeners know what that means. But before we get into all this, because you said you shared it early that your work, you focus on educating white people, sharing this information with white people so that they can change their conduct uh, and not mistreat non-white people because they don't speak the king's English. They don't know all the spoonerisms and such. Um, have you seen any evidence that white people collectively are going to voluntarily desist from the practice of white supremacy racism? So my research shows that, and, and my research is very much focused on language attitudes, as I mentioned at the beginning of the program, um, which, of course, language as, is a big part of our identities. And so language is, of course, wrapped up in the same, um, uh, in the same um, ways that our race and our gender and our religion and our sexual orientation and all those kinds of things, all of that impact our identity. Language is just one of those factors, which means that language also impacts and is impacted by all of those other factors, of course, including race. 
Um, so, um, so we talk a lot about race in my class and we talk a lot about, um, cultural background and ethnicity as well, um, and gender as well. Um, but what, what I, what my, what my research really focused on trying to uncover is if students' language attitudes had changed. I was specifically seeking to find if their attitudes toward, um, Englishes or types of English that don't are, are not white ways of speaking, right? I was trying to, to study how their attitudes toward those non-white ways of speaking had changed. And um, my evidence showed the, through the research that I did that um, all of my students of color were receptive to the, um, to the uh, methodology that I used to teach. And all of my female students, regardless of their race, were receptive in terms of their willingness to admit to a shift in their attitudes toward better attitudes toward language diversity. Um, where I found a significant outlier in my research was with white men. So all of, the, all of the people who were unwilling to admit to a shift in their attitudes or who openly resisted this process of of um, becoming more open toward language diversity and becoming more appreciative of non-white ways of speaking. All of the people who fell into that camp of resisting were white men. And so in my book, I talk about that group and how I, um, and how I've worked on and developed ways to try to target people in that group to, tr to try to best work with them toward improving their attitudes, because at least in my research, it shows that, that that group is an outlier in terms of their um, strong resistance to um, essentially, uh, uh, you know, dismantling white, white supremacy. So that's, that's what I found. And other researchers have found similar uh, results as well. But I did find a strong group of white women and, um, and, a, and a significant size of the, the students who I taught in the study of white men who were by the end of the semester willing to admit to a shift in their attitudes um, and who proved through their writing and through the research methods that I studied, who proved that they had made some gains throughout the semester. Um, uh, wh whether those gains continued beyond my class is not something that I was able to study in depth. Okay. This is one. I do want to make sure I get an answer to my question, although I think that that does do a pretty uh, comprehensive job of explaining the structural inquiry of stigmatized Englishes and some of the work that you do in trying to get white people to change their views. But the question again, mm -hmm. uh, any evidence white people collectively are going to voluntarily stop practicing white supremacy racism? Again, I can share what my research showed and my, my research showed and, and the evidence that I was able to gain was from students' personal writing that they did throughout the semester. So that's the evidence I studied their writing at the beginning of the semester and their writing at the end of the semester when asked questions like um, um, uh, questions about their attitudes toward um, particular ways of speaking and toward particular um, groups of speakers, such as speakers of African-American English, for example, or black language. Um, and the evidence shows that some people um, show gains. Now, I, I can't say that my evidence lends to those students being willing to, as you say, um, um, you know, work toward, right, dismantling white supremacy. 
Um, but, but I, I do think that it worked to a certain extent to kind of, um, introduce those students to concepts that they had never thought about before, um, to especially how language plays a role in racism. Um, that's what my, my approach, the structural inquiry of stigmatized English's approach really does is to introduce people to language bias and to linguistic discrimination, given that they, those factors aren't often brought up as a part of our discussions of, of racism. So, um, I cannot say that I found significant evidence, which is a problem, definitely, of, of, these, of the students that I worked with being willing, the white students in particular, being willing to, um, uh, to work toward dismantling white supremacy. But I saw small gains, at least, in their awareness and their acknowledgement of, um, of linguistic discrimination and linguistic bias and, um, and their participation in it. Okay. That's, I feel like, because that's a really important question. I said that at the white privilege conference, when they were trying to demand that I share what type of privilege I have as a black male in a system of white supremacy. I said, well, before we get to that list, uh, is there any evidence that white people are going to voluntarily discontinue the practice of white supremacy? Because if the answer is no, well, then we would have a very different approach about how we go about solving this problem. And that was another yeah. one. It took too long for you to say, well, no, there's not really. And particularly you even share in your report that your students could be lying. I mean, you are handing out grades. This is a class. It's not like some of the students yeah. might say, I'm not going to come in here and say, no, this was a total waste of time. And I feel the exact same way about language. I, who's going to say that for or many people might be hesitant about doing that if they got a grade on the line i'm trying to get on the dean's list and dr hercula is not going to mess that up yes your class is great that could happen you even acknowledge that and even beyond all that even if they say yes i think about this totally different and i you know see ebonics or african-american english i do see that as a separate language with a structure it's not worse Mm -hmm. it's just different even if they say all that Mm -hmm they can still go out and practice white supremacy racism. You even said that for yourself. So that should be one that's not difficult. There's no, I haven't talked to any white person who's been able to point to any evidence that yes, white people are going to voluntarily stop doing this collectively zero. And that's, again, I think that's so important because that total, we can't go into a conversation as if that's the case when it's not, and no one in the universe can point to any evidence to con- uh, to contradict that. That should be important uh, if there's no evidence. But with your work and even unpacking some of that, because I thought that was fascinating, even reading some of the reports from some of your students who uh, taken your class to see if it changes their ideas. Uh, let's see if I can get some of the juicier quotes from the text. Let's see. Even before I get to to that one of the ideas in this concept of structural inquiry of stigmatized English is that when we start to learn about language grammar school and such um, mm-hmm. that it is about correctness uh, and you, you talk about mm-hmm. that that seems to be a core of this problem when we start learning about language and grammar and all of that that it's about correctness can you unpack that yeah, I, I kind of talked about this a little bit uh, a little bit ago when I was talking about how the, the roots of the English language are in 
these um, dictionaries and grammar books that were written in the 17th and 18th century um, by by white wealthy men, landowning men, um, and that kind of legacy that shaped how the language got originally kind of written down and codified and standardized, if you will, um, has stayed with the language since then. So all of us throughout our K through 12 education get steeped in this understanding that there is one correct way to speak English. There's one correct way to write English and that we should all be striving toward that one way. Um, and a lot of linguists will call it not just standard English or mainstream English or whatever you want to call it, but it's white English, right? It's based on those original, um, those original features of the English that was spoken by those men in the 17th and 18th century, those white men wrote those original dictionaries and grammars. So many of us are steeped into this belief um, throughout our schooling that, that there's only one correct way, right? There's only one right way. There's only one good way. And also that that way of speaking and writing is inherently better than all the other ways of speaking and writing. But the truth is, as linguists know, that those, um, that, that one way, right, that one standard English, if that's what you want to call it, or white English, if you want to call it that, um, is it's not better. It's not inherently better in any way. When we study other ways of speaking, um, when we study other what linguists call dialects or varieties or types of English, um, we see that they are just as unique and just as rule-governed and just as structured um, as any other way of speaking. Um, and uh, they follow their own patterns, though those patterns differ from this supposed um, inherently good system that we're all supposed to strive toward. So when many people think of language, they think of language as this one end-all be-all system that is correct and that all other systems are incorrect. In fact, they're not systems at all. To the average everyday person, they're just mistakes or errors or something like this. Um, again, linguists have done lots of research to prove that that is not the case. Um, and that all systems of, of uh, speaking are equal linguistically. Now, socially, of course, they are not because certain speakers of certain uh, uh, varieties of English are, are privileged or given linguistic privilege or viewed positively just by nature of how they speak, whereas speakers of other varieties are stigmatized or looked down upon just by nature of how they speak. So um, while, while all dialects are linguistically equal, they're certainly not socially equal. And that's the problem that I try to tackle uh, in my research. And that's, it's a, it's a, it's a, um, un, it's a non-fact based uh, uh, social conception of language um, that, that I work on correcting. Fascinating. Okay. I'm going to unpack some of the details, some of the folks, white people, who took your class and shared some of their views on how it changed their thinking uh, about language uh, in hearing your response. Many things came to mind um, just the P words. Cause we, we heard privilege uh, several times, even their privileged language and people who uh, I get white people who are privileged because of how they speak and non-white people not getting access to those privilege uh, just the word privilege, since we're talking about language, make sure I unpack this for listeners. The incorrectness mm -hmm. in using the word privilege when talking about the system of white supremacy, we want to play on our P words. It makes it very passive that white people are given privilege. When I use the word 
practice, it's deliberate. White people are not passively, idly bumping around the world and just having goodies stuffed in their pocket unawares. All of that is a part of the deception of white supremacy racism so that individuals like our guest if they are found to be guilty somehow where they did do something to practice racism they didn't know they weren't aware all of that is a lie white people cannot be ignorant about white supremacy racism but we use language that gives them some sort of innocence naivety because I mean privilege is really passive like it is it's substantially different saying privilege as opposed to practice this is not just something that you do this is something you refine your techniques and the evidence suggests oh yeah white people refine the practice of white supremacy racism everything else gets upgraded how would the system not but we'll pivot did you want to respond am i being logical dr hercula yeah, it makes perfect sense. This is a term um, privilege that gets used a lot in my field and among um, even people who, who do um, work in, in uh, critical race studies and who, who do work on language diversity like I do. But I do see it as problematic, as you point out. It's just a word that I have been reliant upon as I discuss my work. So I will try uh, to, to make sure to not use that word and to be more specific about exactly what I'm talking about um, um, to make sure that I'm being clear and, and um, not obfuscating, as you mentioned at the beginning. Power. That's the other P word. Practice. Power. Pra- those are the mm-hmm. accurate P words we should be using mm-hmm. to describe what white people do. Not privilege. Practice maintain white power uh but the folks who took your class so this first fella well not first but just one of the fellas tom white man uh you write about him he gives lots of juicy quotes so he says truth and he even uses the word truthfully truthfully hey i didn't change my views i'm sticking to my guns on all this and great information maybe i'll try to integrate what i learned but no my mind didn't change and even acknowledges i guess that's not a good thing you know maybe i should have changed my mind i'll read you writes or this is him quoting him he says this is tom i mean let me back up make sure i get it all Uh, i don't know i also just have had an ideology that they don't care to change their dialect at all I'm trying my absolute hardest to try and be more accepting. However, I mean, every time I hear it walking to class in the dining center to think exactly what you say about how the dialect is no different, no lower than other dialects. Somehow I still think the same. However, I think that's also because of the way they talk or the things they talk about when they talk in that form that also is what makes me just see it as a lower dialect i think if i were to meet someone who spoke african-american english but didn't talk about idiocies or talk loudly in places that are clearly supposed to be quiet maybe that would help me change my mind 
I guess it's just something different. So it's complete or excuse me. So it's simply hard for me to understand or accept. But do believe me that I tried to see it in a different light. It could be that I'm not trying hard enough. Not pained enough. Maybe because I still don't really need to think about it because it's just irrelevant. I will continue to try and look past my thoughts. However, to try to change. Good old Tom. Uh, you unpacked a lot of his, his use of, of they and he's not really changing his mind. Uh, do you think this is indicative of most white people? That of students that I worked with who uh, the subset of students who I worked with who uh, were very resistant, right, to the, the practices that I engaged in in the classroom and to the content. Um, Tom is clearly racist and Tom is uh, clearly linguistically discriminatory. And uh, Tom obviously doesn't uh, doesn't care to to change those things, especially it's telling that he says that it's irrelevant to him. He's he's literally talking about how uh, it's something he doesn't have to think about because it doesn't impact him um, directly as a white person. So um, yeah, really problematic and, and a really good, um, a really bad example in a lot of ways, of course, but a good example of what you've been talking about, about uh, white people being unwilling to, um, to work toward dismantling white supremacy. And even some of the things that he, he points out here that he, maybe I would think differently if they weren't out in public talking about idiocies. I'm not sure, yeah. you know, what he's talking about specifically, what they were talking about. But so are white people always talking about, I don't know, scientific discoveries and what we can do to vanquish the like serious <laughs> topics? They don't in public talk about anything goofy or silly at all ever. Uh, and then he goes talking loudly in places that are clearly supposed to be quiet. Again, white people don't ever. you want to the loudest people that I've ever seen in public, white people who are intoxicated hands down champs anywhere that I have been the loudest, but all of these things, I just point this out because you can be a non white person and have like pristine English or French or whatever the case may be. You could be a doctorate. You could have the same degree that Dr. Hercula has. We're in a system of white supremacy. That's, you know, not even, the point that's totally irrelevant they don't mistreat non-white people because we don't speak english well they mistreat non-white people because they practice racism like i just feel like this this reasoning oftentimes can lead it to where non-white people end up thinking if we just didn't do these things racism wouldn't exist if we spoke this way or didn't speak loudly when None of that is the case. I think President Obama's English is pretty good, and he got a historic level, more death threats than our current president, which is astounding. I thought his English was pretty good. Like that's they just throw um, when I say they racists will throw out these type of excuses to justify their commitment to white supremacy racism. That's the way that I wanted to say it. Just any thoughts in response, Dr. Hercula? Yeah, absolutely. You're you're spot on, and um and 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 I didn't want to. So in my book, I could have shied away from including responses like Tom's and Greg's and some of the other um, white men who fell into that category of 
of, you know, being unwilling to admit to a shift in their attitudes. And, uh, and I, and I decided that that would be really problematic if I left out these kinds of responses, because these are the ones that we need to study, right. In order to understand if there is a way forward, right. If there is a way to engage with the Toms and the Gregs of the world to get them to, to work toward changing these really, really negative and untrue and unfounded misconceptions, um, if the, if they're you know th- these are the kinds of of people we need to be studying and working to working on right in order for 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 um for this system to to you know to to get dismantled right um so yeah i i think you know all your your analysis is very much in line with my analysis in the book that follows tom's response um obviously very problematic well, you don't use the, the phrasing commitment to white supremacy, which is crucial uh, to my analysis, commitment yeah. uh, to white supremacy. And this this comes up again. I thought two of the best responses, Tom and then Greg, just a few pages down uh, where I have to give mm-hmm. folks Greg's response so they can get it in all its glory. And then what you said to follow. So Greg says this different white male who took her class. Uh, he says, my opinion of African-American. <laughs> My, now he's criticizing. Anyway, my opinions of African-American have changed to understand that it is a language and does, in fact, have its own set of rules and things you cannot say. It has not changed in the sense that African-American English is equal to mainstream English. Unfortunately, I feel that taking a language and adding a few minor rules does not, in fact, make it a language. I understand that a large theory of African-American English is that it was derived from the slave trying to communicate. I would like you to focus on the main word in the sentence, which is trying, which means that they were merely mimicking things that they had overheard or were barely taught as a means to communicate with white slave drivers on a minimum necessity only basis. So does that mean that they were taught the wrong way of speaking mainstream English? Just a thought I continue to think about. Black people always get wrong things taught incorrectly. So then that's the end of Greg. So this is your writing now. Even more interesting about Greg is that other sources of data indicate that he was, in fact, quite engaged in the content of my course. Moreover, his grade suggests that he learned and understood most of the content. So in this response, he is purposely falsifying aspects of what he learned about the structural features and origin of African-American English using these false concepts to provide what he considers evidence to support the inferiority of African-American English. This is what I mean when you just keep coming to this over and over and over dedication to white supremacy racism and we even had one of our white guests she said you can't wake someone up who is pretending to be asleep metaphor white people Mm -hmm. do a lot of pretending about ignorance and pretend lame excuses for why they practice racism just say dedicated to racism and that's that okay now we got a clean understanding of the problem because am i misinterpreting your work dr hercula no not at all not at all yeah definite um definite evidence of dedication to white supremacy from these two these two men absolutely 
Right. And just making sure, because you did say that, that this subset was white men uh, who seem to have these sort of explicit, I didn't change my mind and I still think this way about black people. They speak loud and all that. It seemed to be uh, exclusively uh, a subset of white men who behave this way. Same thing I said before. You don't have a system of white supremacy racism without white women, white men, white children. I'm always suspicious anytime because it happens so frequently. It's, it's as predictable as the word white privilege being used instead of racism that the problem will focus to white men. I will just number one, my normal go to is Dr. Hercula. Those white teachers, white female teachers, when they talk about the school to prison pipeline, that is white women who are at the root of that problem is no way it can be anything but that since that's about 70 percent of the folks who are in front of the classroom is white female teachers. The other component, I just remind folks, the 2016 presidential election, 52 percent mm-hmm. of white women voters across all socioeconomic spectrums supported our current president. Yeah. White, white wish. Yeah. Yes. Did you have any, did you want to add Dr. Hercula? Yeah, you're absolutely right. And, and I think, um, and, and the, re- the reason why I focus on the white men in this study is because the particular research that I conducted showed them as an outlier. But that's not to say that the white women in my study were completely cured of racism. That's absolutely not the claim that I make in my book. I'm sure that there are still um, white, you know, white women who've gone through my class who still, of course, there are, um, myself included, who still, um, you know, um, enact white supremacy, uh, practice white supremacy and racism. So, um the reason why I focused on the white men in that chapter is because they stood out as an outlier in terms of the specific research question I was asking about changes in attitudes toward language. Um, But that question is not broad enough to cover whether those um, white women in the study um, were, you know, um, you know, it's not, it's not meant to question whether their um, racist attitudes had been right. Um, uh, hopefully improved, but not certainly not studying whether they're whether they um, were coming out of the class with less racist uh, behaviors. Um, again, hopefully they were, and I think many of them were. But the fact that they didn't answer negatively to the one research question I was focused on in the chapter does not suggest that they were they were somehow cured of their racism. That's certainly not the case, and not the claim I'm making by any means. Right on, right on. Uh, let's check in some of our folks who dialed in with questions. Uh, give out the number again. That number seven two zero seven one six seven three hundred. The code five six four nine four three pound. Press star six one if you would like to participate. Uh, First person dialed in with a hand up. Uh, If you have a question uh, for Dr. Sarah Hercula, let's see. Caller last four digits, 0747. Did you have a question? Uh, Yes, greetings, Gus, and greetings, uh, Dr. Hercula. Uh, My question is, um, why does the... uh, English language 
as constructed by white people have so many different words for lying. That is a fascinating question, and I'm not sure that I can fully address it because that's not a topic I've specifically studied, but the the point that you're making there is a good one, and that is um, linguists do know that the number of, of um, words that exist to express a specific concept in a language uh, highlights how important that concept is uh, or, or suggests that there's a heightened importance of that concept for speakers of that language. Um, so there's certainly a correlation there between, um, you know, the, the relevance of that concept being encoded in a lot of different specific words and the people who speak that language. Did that answer your question, sir? Do you think that... Oh, oh do you think that, that one of the things that we discuss on this program is how important lying is in maintaining the system of white supremacy. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think that, and it seems like new words for lying are made continually. For example, I think the one that I like is alternative facts. Since we're in a political season. So new terms for lying are, are made continually. Do you think lying is a critical aspect of the system of white supremacy? It absolutely is. And that's part of what the, you know, the, the book that we're talking about that I wrote has this uh, approach that is meant essentially to uncover the lies of uh, white English, right? The, the students who take my class I set out to help them to understand how they've been lied to about language, how they've been taught that there is this one way of speaking that is correct and that all other ways are wrong. And it's through those lies that they've been taught about language that they develop biased attitudes toward people who speak things other than white English. And so I do, um, uh, I, I do see uncovering those lies and talking about the truth of the lies that exist within the system of white supremacy as a huge part of working toward breaking it down. Um, absolutely. You're, you're definitely onto something there. All right. Thanks, Gus. Appreciate it. Thanks, Dr. Hercula. Mm-hmm. Yes, sir. Uh, let's see. Our caller nine zero two nine. 9029, did you have a question for Dr. Hercula? Uh, may I be heard? Yes, sir. Uh, greetings, Gus, uh, and greetings, Dr. Hercula and all the listeners. Um, one question, how do you think, who do you think is more confused about racism, white supremacy? Is it white people or non-white people? White people, 100%. <laughs> Okay. Um, do your studies cover white people using so-called African-American dialect um, as well? Um, from what I've seen, from I'll just be not giving away my age, but I grew up where when I watched TV, I didn't see any commercials using um, so-called slang or ebonics or anything like that in it. And um, obviously the format of hip-hop, so-called hip-hop, was not a dominant uh, 
form of culture um, here in America. Um, but as I've gotten older, I've seen that transition completely reverse. But based on what you're saying with your study, it hasn't gone away that, that quote unquote perception of people that use different forms of language. So do you have any insight into that, why that has occurred within the society, but at the same time, you're still seeing studies of people, um, quote unquote, labeling people that use uh, ebonics or uh, different dialects as um, quote unquote less than? Yeah, that's such a great question. Thanks for asking it. Um, I think that what, um, what we've, what we're seeing in society is that it's become sort of cool among white people, white people um, to appropriate uh, black language and black uh, music, as you brought up hip hop, um, you know, this, this kind of, um, this kind of, um, this, uh, especially among, I would say younger folks, maybe thirties and, and younger, um, and to teens, um, of white people, white kids sort of taking, um, you know, taking these forms of black language and culture and adopting them as their own. And it, it's, it's this kind of way in which, um, African-American or black language has been brought into white culture in really specific ways. Um, but I say really specific ways because it's allowed in certain places, right? It's allowed um, on, um, you know, uh, it's not allowed on social media. It's allowed in the music that you listen to. It's allowed in the stories you read or in the poetry you write or that kind of thing. But it's not considered appropriate or um, allowed, I guess, if I want to keep using that word, when it comes to, say, school, for example. So there seems to be this sort of line where it's okay for certain dialects to exist in certain spaces, but not in other spaces. Um, and, and again, that's a, I think that's a product of white supremacy, that's a product of racism, and it's a product of the, the, to use the, the last caller's word, the lies that we've been taught about uh, language and about, and about what makes good language and about what makes, uh, a lot of times I'll hear the word proper being used, right? What's proper language in this instance? And so um, I, think that, I think that there's a strong line there for folks where, where certain linguistic practices are allowed in certain uh, uh, areas, but not allowed in others because somehow they're not dressed up enough or they're not proper enough. All right. Um, I appreciate that, Dr. Hercule. Um, That's all my questions for now. Thank you. Thank you for calling in. Much obliged, sir. Uh, let's see. Our caller uh, 7713 7713. Did you have a question for Dr. Hercule? Yes, sir. Thanks. Um, hi to all all the callers. Um, hi to Dr. Hercules as well, too. Um, uh, so let's see, you said you started as a school teacher before becoming um, a researcher in college professor, correct? That is correct, yep. Okay, so in the time that you've been doing your research and your studies and with all the students that you have taught, um, after you've taught them all these different things about um, linguistics, especially when it comes to African-Americans, have any of your students um, ever came to you say, oh, I see exactly what you were talking about. Now I'm able to see when other, maybe other white people are practicing racism or rather 
of, of, of practicing racism, or maybe some of your non-white students come to you and say, "Hey, I see these white people practicing racism against me in our um, in their lingu- linguistic skills." Yeah, um, I, I'm sorry that I had a little bit of difficulty hearing you. Um, I think there was maybe a little bit of background noise, but um, so could you say your question one more time? I'm sorry, I just want to make sure I get it right. Uh, apologies. All right. Had, uh, since you've been teaching your students about linguistics and potentially about different types of ways that African Americans speak, have any of your students, like the white ones, for example, ever come to you and say, oh, I'm now seeing the ways that me the white person, I practice people, and have any of your non-white students ever you and say to you, okay, I see how white people are practicing racism against me with their linguistic skills. Yes, absolutely. It's such a, that's such a great question. I have lots of evidence of white students saying, um, being willing to admit, um, unlike Tom and Greg, who we were talking about earlier, being willing to say, now that I know what I know, I'm ashamed of my past practices and I'm going to work harder on not enacting linguistic bias in the future. I'm not being racist and, um, and, and uh, discriminating against people who speak uh, Black English or African-American English. Um, so I have had some evidence of that, which has been really encouraging. Um, I've also had some really great experiences okay. with some speakers of African-American English as well, as you were asking, of saying, you know, them realizing that they had also been ingrained into negative attitudes about their own dialect that they were speaking. Um, and, and um, you know, having, having realized that looking back, they, you know, they, they felt like they could speak more freely in their, um, in their dialect, right, um, now that they had kind of taken that class and studied what some of the impact was. Okay, with that, can you give specific examples of certain words or phrases that might have been used specifically for the white students that you were teaching and maybe some examples from some of the black people who said, oh, you taught me how to, you know, well, basically give examples on both sides of specifically ways that they realized racism was being practiced. Yeah, um, I'm not, I don't have my, um, I don't have my quotations right in front of me, so I, I don't, I'm going to paraphrase here a little bit because I'm just basing this on memory. Um, but I would have a lot of students, a lot of white students say things like, um, I'm ashamed or, um, you know, I, I, um, um, I regret to acknowledge, right, or um, I feel bad now that I know X, right, these kinds of expressions, or I feel guilty about how I acted in the past. Um, so these kinds of expressions of, of um, realizing now that they know what they know, that they feel badly about what they had done in the past. Um, and, um, one, one student I'm thinking of in particular who identified as African-American, um, talked about how he found the, um, he found the class, he used the word, um, uh, healing. He said he found the class to be very healing for him, um, because it, it, for him, it, it, uh, cleaned up some of the misconceptions that he had started to believe about the ways that he grew up speaking, about the ways that his family spoke, about the ways that his community spoke. Um, and he said that, you know, taking the class was healing for him in that way. So that was, I remember that one specific word that he, um, that he used. Okay. Um, I heard what you said, but I'm not sure if that was uh, answer to my question, at least along the lines of, for example, I remember a couple of years ago, um, you know, with the kind of work that I do as a planner, um, there was a woman 
who specifically said to me along the lines, a white lady who specifically said to me that I said something that because of the way I said it, I came off in a particular way that might have been insulting, right? Now, me personally, um, at the time, I was a little younger, four or five years, uh, five or six years ago. Um, I took it as, oh, okay, she's trying to correct me. Uh, maybe I did do something wrong. And then a couple of years later, after I listened to a couch for quite a bit of time, I realized that she was being a, a racist in that moment. Mm-hmm. And this is what I mean as an example. What specific language or words or situations where a white person was specifically doing a specific act that was realized to be the practice of racism, not necessarily, oh, I realized what I was doing and therefore I will mm-hmm. do better. Gotcha. Um... I'm trying to think of some of the examples that the students gave of um, practices that they engaged in. So I'll give you an example of my own because that I can definitely do. Um, When I was a teacher and when I was working with my um, black students, I would often um, correct them in what they were saying. They would say something to me and, um, and I would, and I would, I would correct the way that they had worded it to be, be more in line with white English. Right. And looking back on that experience, I realized that was specifically racism. That was white supremacy, right? That was me, even though I, even though I thought at the time that I was doing the best thing for them, right. By trying to help them to quote unquote, correct their language. What I realize now is that those were, that was just an enactment of white supremacy. That was just me trying to, um, you know, live to, to uphold a system in which white ways of being and white ways of talking are, are perceived as better somehow. So that's an example I can give from my own experience. Um, I'm trying to think of what some of my students said, and I can't recall any examples off the top of my head at the moment. Okay. Um, If you can't remember any, I can see how that's possible, but I do personally feel that it's a cop-out to say one of your examples, because I believe you gave that example earlier in the interview. and this, I think, gets back to the idea of what Gus was saying a moment ago. Is there evidence that white people are, you know, willing to give up racism? And at least to me, part of it is revealing when white people, especially other white people, aside from that white, you know, like yourself, are doing something that's harmful to non-white people. And you're studying this stuff, but you're having a hard time remembering specific situations where the very things, the very techniques that you're trying to teach white people to use to get better but you're having a hard time remembering at least a couple of examples of when the things you taught these people helped them to do better not to harm uh, non-white people. Am I understanding that correctly? Um, Well, I'm sorry. I'm still just having the tiniest bit of hard time hearing you. Um, But what I I think you're asking me is, is if I think it's a problem that we don't have more examples of white people having uh, uh, admitted right times when they've been racist and times that and 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 um, uh, having having uh, admitted to past experiences or past things that they have done specifically that that they would do differently now that they know what they know right um, is that what you're asking I, I'm sorry I just want to make sure I'm I'm hearing you correctly um, that is correct so I, I do appreciate the example you gave of yourself. Um, you know, that, you know, obviously teaching non, uh, non-white students that, you know, in a way that, you know, correcting their behavior and their English patterns to be more white. Mm-hmm. Uh, nevertheless, mm-hmm. you're, you're someone who teaches other white people how to, um, what you know, so that they themselves can be better and not harm not white people. And while I was looking for examples of the people who you taught, 
coming to you and saying exactly in what context they were able to apply what they learned from you, not mm-hmm. to engage in the practice of racism. But maybe mm-hmm. I didn't phrase it correctly, but that, I apologize. But I do have another question for you, because at least with the kind of work you do, it, at least to me, it falls in line with people like Robert D'Angelo. You know, she goes around and she um, gets paid for teaching, you know, different organizations, you know, how to re- recognize their racism and stuff like that. And recently, one of the reports that came out for her stuff is that these, these kinds of studies usually have no effect um, on white people when it comes to convincing them not to practice racism. So along those lines, um, might you, um, ha- um, you know, obviously, I think you're saying you said that white males were having a hard time changing their minds, not practicing racism. Mm-hmm. So what makes you think that what you're doing right now with the kind of work that you do it's having the effect of changing how white people behave when it comes to non-white people and not practicing racism. And that's my last yeah, question. That's such a, again, it's a really good question. It's, um, it's a tough question and it's why I'm doing the research that I'm doing because I, you know, I lived for a year in my classroom. I lived the everyday experience of um, failing my students, right. Of, of living into white supremacy in that classroom and of, of failing my students in the process, um, like many, many, and many of their teachers had before and many of their teachers probably had after. And so because of that, I felt convicted to do something, right? I felt that that I was being called into this work, into investigating what is the best way to try to prevent this from happening in the future. And so one of the ways that I'm trying to uh, answer that question is by actually studying and conducting research on the methods that I'm developing. So I'm not just trying things out in my classroom and hoping for the best. Instead, I'm actually trying to find evidence to support that the, 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 the um, pedagogy, the, the approaches that I've developed actually works, right, as you're saying. Um, because there are plenty of people out there who think they're doing well, who think they're doing good and are actually doing more harm than good, right? Um, many white people are doing that. And I'm trying really hard to be one of those white people. And one of the ways that I'm doing that is by doing what I did in the book, for example, and trying to break down um, is, you know, is this actually being effective? Is this actually doing what I hope it will do um, in the limited time that I'm given with each of my students? Am I actually making an impact on their future um, uh, ways of thinking and on their future behaviors. So I'm working hard to try to make sure that that's the case so that I'm not doing more harm than good. Um, and I really appreciate your question because it's an important one. And it's one that, um, you know, all white people who are working on, uh, uh, racism need to be asking themselves, right? Am I doing, am I actually doing what I'm trying to set out to do or am I causing more harm than good? Much obliged, non-Clemson grad. Uh, let's see, Mo in Dallas. Uh, did you have a question for Dr. Sarah Hercula? You should be with us, Mo in Dallas. Uh, um, thank you, greetings, Wes. Greetings, Dr. Hercula. Um, um, my question is, you when when you were asked earlier in the program. Um, if you practice um, racism, you said that you did in your earlier years, you failed your students. And um, you just used the, the same word again, fail your students. So my question is, um, do you mean you failed them as in you did them a disservice or you failed them? 
them by doing them a disservice, by not teaching them in the ways that would have been best responsive to, to them as students. Um, I, I relied on the, on the training that I received to be a teacher, and that training was steeped in white supremacy and therefore led to me enacting harmful practices in my classroom. So that's what I meant by failed, is that I should have been a much better teacher for them than I was. Okay, thank you. I need my life now. Much obliged. Mo in Dallas. Uh, the Black African. Did you have a question for Dr. Hercula? You should be with us. Uh, thank you, Gus. Yeah, I have a few questions. Uh, Dr. Um, do, do Black people uh, read enough and do they comprehend what they're reading? Interesting question. I, I, I don't do a lot of research on reading, so I'm not sure that I can really respond to that factually. Um, but what I can say is that um, I, think, <laughs> I think in 2020, nobody's reading enough. <laughs> I think we've gotten into a society in which Many people are relying more on getting their news from social media, for example, or on, um, you know, watching television or watching movies or we're over we're inundated, right, with, with Internet and with all kinds of different, um, you know, um, sources of, of uh, entertainment and of, of ways to spend our time. And so I think the, the I would argue that the practice of sitting down and reading a book written by an expert on a topic is something that more people in general need to engage in in 2020. Um, but I can't speak specifically to um, whether that's a white and black, whether there's a difference well, between white and black well, people when it yeah, comes well, to that. What about, the, what about the students? What about the students that you taught in high school? Ah. Uh, well, we all, I mean, I think many, probably most of the people who are listening to this program know that there's an achievement gap. And, and when we talk about that achievement gap, what we mean is that, that white students um, tend to do better in school than students of color um, in general, right? Especially when it comes to things like reading and English and, um, uh, you know, topics and, and subjects like that that are language related. So, um uh, so I think that there probably can be an argument made that um, the kinds of practices, the kinds of literacy practices, right, the kinds of reading that are valued in schools um, are steeped in, uh, you know, things like the the like like um, reading to your children when they're young and um, and reading certain kinds of texts, though, right, reading. Um, um, uh, books that are written in white English, for example, or books that are um, nonfiction books that are, that are, um, you know, uh, again, mostly going to be written in white English or standard English. And so um, I think that if you're, if you're trying to judge the, the, the achievement of black students versus white students in schools, we find that white students tend to have more experience with the kinds of, of reading practices that are, um, valued in schools, and black students tend to have less experience with those. That's not to say that black kids don't yeah, get a say, lot of I, literate activity. I, I, apologize. I, I apologize for interrupting. Like, there's um, so I'm not asking for like context, and I'm not asking about like you know like general, uh, you know, 
everybody needs to read, you know, 2020. I'm just asking, like, you know, you were a teacher of black students, and I think you're teaching people right now, students and other types of people. I think you said international people and whatnot. So I'm just wondering, like, like just it's, it's just, like, kind of simple, like, you know, do black people read enough? The black people comprehend what they're reading? And I'm asking, because there, there was a person that came on the program that was very adamant that black people do not read enough and that they don't understand what they're reading. So I'm just wondering from your experience, is that a yes or no? I just don't feel like I can answer that question. Um, I taught for, I taught high school for one year with predominantly black students, but since then I've been teaching at the college level and I've been working with students of all different oh, racial cultural backgrounds since year? then. What was, your, what was your experience that one year? What, what did you think? Did you think that they read enough? I think that they that the students could have spent more time reading. It was difficult for me to motivate them to read when they were in school. That I can say. Okay. Um, I have another question. Um, uh, two more questions. What is the link between intelligence uh, and language? And then sort of like, I'm, I don't know why, I keep thinking about the spelling bee, because mm-hmm. I, I remember, I remember, I don't know when it started, but I remember a time when all of a sudden on TV, I started seeing the non-white people, so-called Indians, and their children were winning spelling bees, and it seemed mm-hmm. like white people were saying that because the non-white, so-called Indians were winning spelling bees that they were intelligent. Is that mm. is that correct or is that not correct? Are white people lying? White people are lying, indeed. Um, one of the things that linguists, uh, one of the myths that linguists try to break down is that there is a link between the, the kind of language that you speak or the way that you speak and your level of intelligence. Um, there is not uh, a link between those two things. So a person um, will grow up speaking whatever language or whatever dialect is spoken wherever they're born. Nobody gets a choice, right, over what language they grow up speaking. We all just speak. We learn how to speak from the people who raise us, right, and from the communities we grow up in. You can have a very, very smart uh, person who's born into a, a language group that is looked down upon in society, and so people tend to think that that person is unintelligent based on the way that they talk. But they can be, of course, very, very smart. And the inverse is true also. You can have a person with a very sort of low IQ, if you want to use that as your measure of intelligence, who's born into a community that speaks a language that sounds a lot like um, standard English or white English, if you want to call it that. So it's, um, so there's really no, there's no correlation between a person's like inherent level of intelligence and the way that they speak. Um, but there is, there is a correlation between how long a person remains in the educational system and the way that they end up speaking. So the longer, the no- longer number of years of school that you have, the more your spoken language tends to change a little bit towards sounding more like academic English. Um, so there's a little bit of a correlation there between sort of education level and, and potentially the way a person talks. Um, but the, the whole, um, the whole uh, assumption that people make that if you sound a certain way, you sound smart or you sound dumb is completely unfactual. Um, and also, you can be a very good speller and not be that smart <laughs> and vice versa. So the whole spelling thing is quite a myth as well. <laughs>
Okay, my last question. I saw uh, the video that um, that Gus posted. It had you um, in like different scenes. I think at your school and in an interview, and you were really um, happy. You you were just so happy. Like every scene, you were just happy. I was wondering, um, like, what is your secret? Like, why are you so happy? And like. Um, how does one, like, yeah, what's your secret? How does one become happier? Like, cause you were just so happy. <laughs> um, gosh, if, if I can go into this, this is non-academic, but for me, it, it comes from my faith and it comes from, um, my, my eternal commitment to hope. Um, we're living in dark times right now in all kinds of ways. And, uh, for me, I, I rely deeply on, um, my beliefs and on my, my unwavering um, commitment to, to the fact that I think that things will get better. Um, I, I, I have to, I have to cling to hope and that hope gives me the ability to live each day um, knowing that, that, that in the end it's going to be okay. Right. That as long as I'm doing my part and doing my best and working on the ways in which I see the world being broken, then I, um, then I can, I can live knowing that I, um, you know, that I'm, that I've done my part and that I'm doing my best and that in the end, um, things will work out how, uh, how they're supposed to. Um, so yeah, I, (laughs) it's a little non-academic of me, but that's where, that's where that's rooted from for me. Okay. Uh, thank you, doctor. I, I heard the term dark times. Very fascinating. Thank you, guys myself as well aren't you a, a yogi is yoga a part of your happiness dr hercula <laughs> i do engage in yoga as often as i can i'm a little out of practice at the moment but i try to right on yoga instructor myself let's see uh <laughs> uh nine four oh one nine four oh one did you have a question for dr hercula you should be with us ma'am uh, good evening. Can I be heard? Yes, ma'am. Yes, cool. Um, uh, my question is, I wasn't sure what, is the, is the doctor saying she's not racist now, but she was racist in the past? Is that what you were saying? No, absolutely not. I, I have been working on my racism and I've been trying uh, very, very um, adamantly in my research and in my everyday practices to practice anti-racism. Um, but but certainly, as a white person, I cannot claim that I am in no way racist. And the other question I had was, um, I think uh, earlier you were saying that um, people need to uncover the lies. And I guess once the lies are uncovered, uh, are you saying that once the lies are uncovered, they will stop uh, practicing racism and supremacy? No. Unfortunately, I wish that were the case, but it's not the case. Um, I think that part of the problem is uh, is re-education, and part of the problem is, um, as you meant, as you say, uncovering the lies that have been taught to people. But it takes more than that in order for white supremacy to be dismantled. I think we all know that. Um, it, it's going to take uh, commitment. It's going to take. It's also going to take large-scale changes to the systems and the institutions that we live in. Um, it's not an individualized, um, it's not like, you know, if, we, if even if we could flip a switch and make every single 
a white person be non-racist. Of course we can't, but even if we could, we would still have racism because of the way that society is set up. So I certainly don't believe that just by uncovering lies and by working with individuals that this is going to solve the problem, but it's, it's a step that can be taken and it's a step that at least moves some people in the right direction. Um, I, have, I think I got two more, <laughs> I have two more questions. Um, uh, it's individuals make up the system, right? So if individuals change, wouldn't the system change? And the second question is, uh, it's with <laughs> me, but can you answer that question? And I'll, I'll think uh, while you answer that question. Yeah, I do believe, and, and, you know, based on the work that I, you know, as a teacher, I believe that the, that working with individuals is important. I, I wouldn't be doing the work that I do if I didn't believe that there's change to be made sort of one person at a time in some ways. So yes, individuals do make up the system. And I do think that by working with people and by changing, you know, helping individual people to work on themselves and to work against um, the system of white supremacy, we are making good change. But the point that I want to make is that, um, you know, even, you know, even that is not enough, right? Just working with individuals and changing individuals' minds is only the first step in the process, because then individuals need to become engaged and need to be willing to act and need to be willing to step into um, the, the, the spaces that govern our institutions and our systems and to, to change them um, from the inside. So I think it takes it takes um, not just re-education efforts, but it also takes activism and acting and behavioral changes in order for the system to the the system as a whole to to be broken down. And my final question is, how 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 can you change the system, or how can white people make any any how can how can white people end white supremacy if they have no interest in ending white supremacy? How does that work? That is the crux of the problem, isn't it? And that's what Gus was talking about earlier, too. It's, uh, I mean, it's going to take a tipping point, I think, of enough people who have done the work on themselves but then willing to take action. So for me, if I'm thinking of systems and institutions, one of the ones that I'm heavily involved in is the educational system, which is definitely steeped in white supremacy. So I've been asking myself, how do I then engage, not just in my own classroom, because I'm just one person working with 20 students at a time, right? That's not enough, right? So how do I work to actually engage the institution or the system of education? And the ways to do that are through broader um, change, right? Through things like, um, you know, um, engaging in the political process to make sure that people get voted in who are um, um, who are going to make good structural changes to the education system, right? It's about working um, with administrators and um, with, with uh, superintendents of, of districts um, to talk with them about um, the ways that their teachers are, are um, enacting practices and about how we can um, develop professional development for these folks that, um, that are going to lead to actual cha large-scale changes, right? Um, it's those kinds of practices, I think, that need to be done. But the truth is, if there aren't enough people who are willing to step up and do that work, as your, as your question is talking about, if there aren't enough people committed to actually changing their behaviors, um, then, it's, then it's not going to happen. 
So it's a tough question what you're asking, and it's an important one. Um, and it's one that I, I personally don't think that there's any way that I can solve. But um, but I think it, it takes individuals stepping into those those um, positions of, of, of acting, right, of not just learning and not just reading books, but then taking the knowledge and turning it into um, into actual behaviors and, and um, you know, using their time and their energy to actually do something about it. Uh, thank you for your response, but I really do feel like it's a circular argument because I'm saying that people are not interested in, in doing that, so why would they even step up if they're not interested? But thank you for your response. Thank you. Much obliged, ma'am. Uh, our victim of racism in New Jersey. Uh, did you have a question for Dr. Hercula? You should be with us. Uh, uh, yes. Can you hear me clear? Yes, sir. Okay. Um, how you doing? Um, the, uh, so, like, the Black Collective, um, you know, a lot of, uh, we had a lot of leaders who spoke um, very great English, whether it was Malcolm X, um, Eric, uh, Michael Eric Dyson, Paul Robeson. Do you think it's a form of racism when white people put black people against each other by making this divide of um, saying that black people who doesn't speak um, standard English is somehow um, jealous or shaming other black people who do or accusing them of being white? Do you think that's a form of racism, if I articulated that question correctly? Yes, you did. Um, absolutely. There's been a ton of research conducted in my field on this question about, um, you know, uh, this question of sort of at the root of this, like, should black people or should um, African-Americans learn uh, standard English, right? Um, or white, you know, wider ways of speaking. Um, and that that is an individual question for for each person to decide. But in a system such as the one that we live in that is steeped in white supremacy, it's really difficult, as you're saying, for a person to become a, um, a well-respected uh, political or social figure without taking that step to learn standard English. So it's a catch-22 that people are put into about whether, you know, um, whether you want to sort of play into the system or not. Um, and I do think that it is a form of, as you say, it is a form of racism for, um, for, for people to put pressure on other people to change their way of speaking, uh, to become a whiter or a more standardized way of speaking. Um, it's a, and it's a problem that the, 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 the beliefs about language that operate in our society broadly, um, they put that problem into place. Okay, so you do believe that it's incorrect for white society to um, say that black people are um, against, you know, speaking um, correct English? Because I often, you know, I often do hear um, those tropes, you know, when black people who do speak proper English are accused of trying to be white mm -hmm. from other black people uh, in their peer group. If I were to get to make the decision, I would say that everyone should speak however they want and that they, there should not be judgments made about them based on how they speak. So I think it is a problem that people are put into a position where they feel pressured to change 
their way of speaking. Um, linguists have linguists know that the way we speak is a part of our identities. It's part of who we are, just, you know, the same way that all of our other identity factors are. Um, speaking is one of the best ways we have of situating ourselves socially in the world. And so to say to someone, oh, yeah, in order to be respected, you need to change the way you talk is essentially saying you need to change part of who you are for it to be considered, um, you know, um, professional or to be considered, um, you know, acceptable or whatever the, the term is that you want. So I do think it's a form of racism to ask people to make that change. Um, it's, 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 it's certainly wrong and it's certainly, it's, uh, it's an in, inherently unequal, unequal um, because certain people are asked to do it, right? Black people, other people of color um, and, and other people aren't, right? They're allowed to just pass how, how they grew up speaking. Okay, in, in your um, in your field of work, and also in your private life, um, how often um do you get pushback or have to um defend um your position as it relates to um standard English language and racism from um, other white people? Often, very often, unfortunately. Um, a lot of people have bought into this idea that I was talking about earlier, that there is one correct way to speak and to write. And, um, and a lot of, especially white people feel that if they've put in the time to learn it, that other people should too. And so it's really hard to convince them to see it in a different way. And so I do get a lot of pushback, but, um, people that are in my field, other linguistic researchers, um, I don't tend to have to defend my positions. We can start from um, an, an assumption that all ways of speaking are linguistically equal, and then we can move from there. So it depends on if I'm talking to people in my field or people outside of my field, for the most part. How about how about in your how about in your personal life? Have you ever had to mm-hmm. um, correct another white person who has some? Um, negative views of black people who may not uh, have may not mastered um, standard English. And if yes, you have, I have. Yeah, I have. Um, I, I can talk about the re-education that I've done um, with members of my family. Um, they they um, are people who who very much value education and are very much bought into, or at least at one point, were very much bought into this idea that, again, there's one correct way of speaking and all other ways are incorrect. And so as I have um, progressed in my field and in my research, I continually share with them things that I have learned um, and, and and slowly calling them out when I see them enact linguistic bias um, and, and um, trying to hold them accountable to this new way of thinking. Um, and I've had more success with some than others. Um, I'll put it that way, but, but I do, I do make sure that my family understands that this is the, um, this is an important issue to me in that I've done this research and that I'm not going to allow them to behave in certain ways or say certain things when I'm allowed without me calling them out for it. Okay. Thanks a lot. That's, that's, that's all I have. Much obliged. Good, sir. Let's see. Uh, retired firefighter in Florida. Did you have a question for Dr. Hercula? Uh, greetings, Gus. Greetings to uh, the guests and everyone on on the uh, program. Uh, 
I came on a little bit a little bit late uh, to the guests. Uh, am I under the understanding uh, that uh, you are a white female? I am indeed. Yes. Uh, have you always identified been been identified as a female uh, by yourself as well as uh, other white people? Yes. Okay, because that's you know uh, I'm aware in this world today that that may not be the case with a lot of people. I uh, just wanted to uh, uh, get the facts on it by asking you directly. Uh, mm-hmm. I understand that you're an expert on words and reading, but I want I want to kind of take you out of that platform into another context. Uh, I heard you uh, earlier, uh, quickly, almost before the uh, victim of racism by supremacy uh, was finished asking the question about who uh, are the most uh, confused or unknowledgeable about the system of racism by supremacy, a white person or a non-white person. And you stated enough to me to that you were kind of confident that it's a white person. Uh, could you verbally illustrate that for us? Uh, because it doesn't seem logical to me. It doesn't make much sense, sense to me that uh, because I've, you know, kind of like been around, but I've never seen a whole lot of dumb white people to racism, white supremacy. Could you verbally illustrate that for us? Well, I think maybe to clarify that a little bit, um, I, I think that white folks understand uh, white supremacy um, because they benefit from it. So they, there, there's no, I don't think you can claim that they're ignorant about how racism works. Um, but I think that, so so one illustration I can give you is like the, the concept that people try to, to claim exists of reverse racism. Um, that is a complete, that the fact that people think that reverse racism is even a thing shows that they have a really shallow understanding of what racism itself is and of, of how deep and systematic the system of white supremacy is. So I think that, um, I think that many white people uh, are, are, I don't want to say, and I, I certainly am not claiming that they are ignorant of the fact that they benefit from racism or of, of, uh, or of the fact, right, that white people are, are of course, um, uh, treated better in society than people of color, but they. But I do think that there are widespread misconceptions about um, uh, the concept of racism and how it operates in society among white people, um, given their lack of ability to fully articulate its effects and um, and how it how it operates systemically in society. Retired okay, firefighter. Uh, if you give me one second before you uh, respond, if it's another question, I'm going to mute. I just want to insert a bit of her writing that we talked about earlier. One of her students, Greg, she's responding. He had uh, written and give some thoughts on her class and he's not going to change his mind. But she writes even more interesting about Greg is that other sources of data indicate that he was, in fact, quite engaged in the content of my course. Moreover, 
his grades suggest that he learned and understood most of the content. So in this response, he is purposely falsifying aspects of what he learned. Reminded me of something we talked about before. Mm. I'll hush. Proceed, retired firefighter. (laughs) That sounds quite interesting. Also, uh, just from your your answer, you you mentioned something about, and it's a quite popular term to me that I've heard from uh, a lot of white people, the term reverse racism. Mm from from my understanding as a context of white people using that term, it is designed directly to confuse non-white people uh, as a confusing, very deceptive term, not so much based on ignorance, which is what I think you were trying to portray. Uh, it's a deliberate weapon that white people have used to confuse the issue of racism, white supremacy, uh, something called reverse racism. Mm-hmm. And uh, in all actuality, uh, there is either there is a system of racism, white supremacy, or there isn't. Does that make sense, ma'am? Yeah, absolutely. Well, yeah, I think I think you're making a good point in that there are a lot of people who have uh, greater knowledge than we might, uh, or greater understanding. And that as, as Gus pointed out with my analysis of Greg's writing, uh, purposefully, right. Uh, uh, um, use their knowledge and use their understanding as a way to, uh, enact harmful, uh, ways of being right. So yes, I think you, you certainly have a point that there's just as much as there is ignorance, if not more, there is intentional, um, intentional obfuscation and harm being enacted uh, that builds, of course, on a system of white supremacy that exists. I mean, when you gave that, when you gave that original answer, I, I started searching around in, in my understanding historically on who was she talking about uh, uh, in, uh, to decide the 1954 Supreme Court uh, decision of uh, uh, of uh, quote unquote integration, uh, some uh, scientists used children, uh, and they would ask the ask the the children on on uh, on what doll is the pretty doll. These happen to be non-white black children, but I'm pretty sure. Which doll is the pretty doll? They're not going to pick up the black doll. They're going to pick up the white doll uh, because of the already the understanding that they Retired have. Retired firefighter, did you have another question? That, that's it. Thank you. Much obliged. Much obliged. Uh, I think we nabbed all of our questions. Uh, I had... A few other quick questions, or I'll double check to make sure, but I had a few other quick questions. I want to make sure I got in. In one of the videos that I saw on YouTube, uh, Dr. Hercula, it looked like you had a black canine, maybe as a pet or or a friend, homie, that you hang out with. Do you own a, a black dog? Uh, 
I do. Fascinating. Uh, we just read Romaine Gary's White Dog. Are you familiar with that book? It's a bestseller. It was published in 1970. It was made into a movie in 1982. Are you familiar with the book? I'm not at all, in fact. I'm curious. It's fascinating. It's one of. The, it's in my top ten. Begrudgingly in my top ten. Uh, it was originally published sure. in French, translated to English. White author. Fascinating read uh, for many, many, many Many, many reasons, but easily one of the best books that I've read about racism. He uses the phrase gaming whitey in the book, which I'd never heard in my life. I now think it's one of the funniest phrases ever, uh, even related to (laughs) reverse racism. But he uses it all the time and he puts it in all capital letters, gaming whitey, which he sees as a huge problem in the 1960s. Have you ever heard of that phrase before? Gaming whitey? I haven't. I haven't. I even think he may have made it up. We talked a lot about, you know, lying and things. I suspect he may have even made it up because he has it in quotes as though someone said this to him or used this term. I've never mm-hmm. heard anyone, white, non-white, never read it, uh, gaming yeah. whitey, only from Romaine Gary. But one of the best terms, I try to find ways that I can incorporate it. Uh, and I do even note, we talked about it before, uh, seems like a lot of white people. What's what's your dog's name, if I may ask? His name is Mohinder. Whoa! Can you say it one more time? <laughs> yep, Mohinder. Mohinder. What does that mean? It's a. It actually comes from um, uh, Punjabi, and it's um, we, it, we. There's not a really a good story behind it. It was just a character on uh, uh, the name of a character on one of the television shows that we watched, and we thought it was fun and. So my dog is a 100-pound black Sharpay Rottweiler. He's a big boy, and he um, he has a lot of energy and strength, and it just kind of seemed to fit him um, with what we knew of the character in the television show that we had watched. Fascinating. Fascinating. White Dog, Book of the Summer. Uh, when you say, as a linguist, someone who studies language, Looking at language from a systemic point of view, what does that mean? Um, so when um, there's, I mean, there's a couple of different ways to, to explain that, but there, um, so uh, we can think of languages as systems. So each language is, is made up of its own uh, rules and patterns that govern it, um, and it is systematic in that way. So we can talk about languages as systems. We can also talk about the difference between how um, languages are viewed systemically versus how languages are viewed by individuals. So we can talk about like, like systemic views towards speakers of particular languages or particular dialects um, and how those systemic views of language um, uh, end up being uh, the ones that govern most people's conceptions and perceptions of people who speak particular languages. Hmm. That's something I would definitely love to study more about thinking about language as a system, uh, just because we talk about mm-hmm. that. I think it's so important. And one of the key components to how the system of white supremacy operates is language words that's the reason for all those crossword puzzles and anagrams and word games there is a reason behind that um Mm -hmm. one of the critical ways uh that whites transfer information about white supremacy racism i have concluded honestly 
times that they speak honestly about racism is in racist jokes. I always try to take advantage mm-hmm. when I'm talking to a white person. Are there any racist jokes that you've heard? If you can remember one or three, please share. Gosh, I can't, I can't really recall any at the moment. Um, because I certainly, you know, if I were to come across a racist joke, I would not share it. And my family has learned by now that they will get severely called out if they try to put that in front of me. So, um, so I don't, and, and most of the people in my uh, circle of friends would not share such things. So I don't know. I can't think of any off the top of my head. Um, Have you heard yeah. a racist yeah. joke before? Of course. Of okay. Course. Has someone in your family shared a racist joke with you before? Yes. This year, we've been on the air. It'll be 12 years if the Rona doesn't drop us before Black History Month 2021. It'll be a dozen years we've been on the air. Man, if I had a nickel for the number of white people, I mean verbatim, your exact responses. Have you heard racist jokes before? Yes. Oh, yeah. We've even had some white people who've been on who literally said, oh, I've heard thousands of them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> say, wow. Family members? Oh, yeah. Every uncle. Blah, 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 blah. Oh, yeah. Bunches. Thousands. of. Can you remember one? And even the white people who say, I've heard thousands all say, I can't remember one. Sorry. I'll be like, dang, you can't remember one. You heard a thousand and you can't remember one. Nope. All of them said, nope, can't remember one. That's fascinating. That's really, really Isn't interesting it? that you have, have get that experience over and over. I, I'm truthfully I'm trying to remember one right now. And I just, I, you know, honestly, I think that I just don't let them take up space in my brain. It's probably more what it is. So. I got enough stuff to think about. <laughs> Don't we all? Did we get everybody's question? We didn't miss anybody, did we? Everybody who had a question for Dr. Hercula got their question in? Tommy Hurt. Mo in Dallas. Uh, yes, I actually have two questions. Um, um, in your In your life, personal or professional, have you ever witnessed um, a, a white person use the word nigger if you don't want to use that word you can say the n-word but have you ever heard uh, a white person in your life personal or professional use that word yes i have okay um what my next question um as a linguist i believe could you give me Mm -hmm. a working definition for that word in white english um I don't. I don't obviously have a uh, dictionary in front of me, and this isn't really the kind of. Um, I don't. I don't uh, do lexicography, which is the the technical linguistic definition for for um, people who who describe and create dictionary uh, entries, right? Um, but I, I can tell you that I know that there's a difference between how the word is used in white communities and how the word is used in black communities, um, and uh, I can tell you that when white people use it, it is a clear. Uh, tie to racism and to white supremacy. It's it's not a, a word that can, if a white person says it, it's not a word that can be devoid of those things. Um, so, um, in my, in my uh, in my understanding of the term, um, it's it's certainly meant to be a derogatory 
a specifically racist and derogatory term for a black person. Yes, ma'am, I agree. Um, but well, the reason why I asked is, um, I, to my understanding, no amount of education or no amount of money can um, disqualify a non-white person from being called a nigger. So I was wondering if you knew what the word meant in white English. Because if you want, you could just, um, like, what do you think it means when they use it? When a white person uses it, I believe they are using it as a, uh, as a, uh, a, a racist term to refer to a black person. That would be my, my definition, a racist term uh, for a black, black person. Okay, thank you. Me and my line. Much obliged, Mo and Dallas. My uh, last question for you, Dr. Hercula. Uh, the concept, uh, or I guess I do, I have a request, but I have a last question. My request would be, man, we should really talk to a uh, lexicographer. I would love to talk to some other language experts. If you know some uh, other white people, they don't necessarily have to be your colleagues, but if they've written books or articles, reports, I absolutely I think it's one of the crucial aspects, core aspects, really, of how the system of white supremacy operates is language. Uh, And I feel like uh, Mm -hmm. just really studying that deconstructing it is a major component of how we're going to solve this problem. I, man, would uh, really be grateful for the chance to speak with some other uh, white linguists, a lexicographer. So if you know some colleagues, some folks that you could recommend, a nice little email with some suggestions would be awesome uh, or literature to check out if there are books or anything, because I feel like that's something that you could, you know, whip up without too much time. Uh, Is that is that something that you can do? Absolutely. Yeah, I'd love to. Awesome. All right. My last question, the the notion of sounding white or sounding black, uh, I feel we talked a lot about evidence. No component of that is based in evidence. Right. If we're talking about you sound white because of the words or sounds that came out of your mouth, like anyone could pick up a dictionary and use certain words. There's nothing about saying certain sounds. I don't think that's attached to racial classification. I don't think that's how they assign racial classification by listening to you talk for a little. Oh yeah, we got a nigra here, white person. I don't think that's how it works. If it's sound in terms of your, not necessarily the words that you're using, but how you say it. Wow. That's even more, even if it's voice tone, because every black person doesn't have like a lot of resonance, like a Barry White, rest in peace, type voice. Every black person doesn't sound that way. Uh, and it can't even mm-hmm. be the way that you are articulating, like the cadence or what. Ha- it can't even be that because anybody, we had the word mimic. Anybody could just listen to the way that you're speaking and then go mimic that when they go to speak. So I'm of the opinion all of that has to be based on white supremacy racism saying that someone sounds white or sounds black or anything based on either what words they are saying or how they say the specific words. Uh, which, what are your thoughts, Dr. Hercula? Yeah. So, um, one, one, um, bit of research to look into is research that's been conducted by John Bow, 
who does research into what's called linguistic profiling. And so he studies um, essentially how good are people at determining a person's uh, race or gender uh, based on how they sound. Um, he conducts these experiments where he'll have people who can, can code switch between multiple varieties, uh, get on the phone with someone and uh, imitate, uh, you know, use, use their different dialects and see how people react to them when they talk in their different dialects, for example. Um, and so all of that is based on the assumptions people make about when they hear somebody about their race or about their gender. And there are plenty, as you point out, there are plenty of people who are able to um, sound, uh, you know, quote unquote, sound white or quote unquote, sound black, even if they aren't right, uh, uh, white or black. So, um, what what the research shows on linguistic profiling is that people are are generally able to determine some of these characteristics just based on their experiences out in the world listening to people talk. Um, so they listen to the the um, what we what linguists call the phonology, right? The pronunciation patterns and things like that, and can sometimes make these distinctions. But there also are plenty of people who can cross those boundaries as well. So it's not, uh, it's linguistic profiling is obviously uh, highly connected to racial profiling, which is the visual component of that, in which a person is denied access or, um, 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 or treated poorly, right, in some way, or, um, or, or harmed on the basis of the color of their skin. That same thing can exist when someone hears a person on the phone, for example, judges their dialect to be one that is stigmatized and then does not denies that person some kind of opportunity or harms them in some way. So there is a lot of really interesting research being done on this, on this concept. Um, and, uh, and, and it's, it's a fascinating question about whether people actually can make these distinctions or not. But what is true is that people think they can make these distinctions and they do act in harmful ways based on these distinctions. So whether, uh, you know, whether it's based in reality or not, it is a problem. And it's something that, that um, you know, linguists have been, have been researching and investigating. Mm. It's people are not as good at it as they think they are. Uh, that's, that's right. In ter- and we don't talk about accuracy. White people, non-white people, this is a cow's program. It is coming because we have had some spectacularly embarrassing moments where people got real confident that they were talking to a white person wrong real confident that they were talking to a non-white person wrong and i mean it's even cliche Mm -hmm. i said this before non-white people they submit an application no picture they fill out a resume for a job and the white person maybe they talk to them on the phone like oh okay blah 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 great looks great awesome be glad to have you on and then they see him like whoa yep yep oh my god that right there even white people are not as good at this as they think they are, which is why I said we should just drop all of that. All of that is based on assumptions and racism. Yep. Even if you're correct, like 30, 40 percent of the time, like what is that really saying? Just yep. because this person was using black slang or whatever else we think it's based on, let it go. There's no such thing as That's sounding right. black, sounding white. I do the same thing I did when Dr. Hercula came on the program today. Am I talking to a white person? Very easy. Uh, I got all of our questions. We didn't miss anybody. Spectacular. Uh, enjoyed it. I am, uh, as I said, I was super excited. Felt like I learned a lot. Got great information. I even was looking uh, 
Mr. Bao, as you were talking, his work on linguistic discrimination is fascinating. I'm going to go see if I can check out some of his yeah. work and definitely we'll look forward to the, uh, if you can send maybe an email with some other literature or folks to check out and research, I would absolutely love to uh, check it out. Uh, if you can email it to me, we'll see if we can get them on the program and do some more work, maybe get some uh, literature for the book club. Uh, but it has been a hoot. Okay chatting with you this uh, this Wednesday evening. Uh, thank you so much, Dr. Hercula, for sharing a bit of your time and energy uh, with us. Learned a ton. Uh, we will definitely be in touch. Maybe we can have you back on the program down the road. Sounds great. Thank you so much for the invitation. Thank you. Uh, take care. We will be in touch. Okay. Bye-bye. Good evening. Context of white supremacy. Again, our guest for the evening, Dr. Sarah Hercula. Uh, I will look out for that email, see if we can get some of these other folks uh, as guests on the program. Even found some white people who study linguistics uh, and look at this particular type of phenomena. What we were just talking about towards the end there in terms of the linguistic bias, having an individual who sounds non-white or they're using words that we think of as these are non-white, you know, diction, vernacular way of speaking or what have you. We're not going to give them the job, that type of thing. Looks like she does a lot of research on this. So maybe we can have her on the broadcast. Uh, I'll check in, folks, if they have any thoughts. I can only say again, enthusiastically, white guests only. Rest of the calendar year. It might be indefinitely white guests only. That is the context of white supremacy. Don't even suggest non-white people. Don't even suggest non-white people. If you make a mistake and suggest someone and then look, oh, they're non-white. My bad. Don't even consider. Don't even waste your time. As soon as you see that they're not white, you already know they're not even going to be invited Certainly for the rest of the calendar year, it might end up being definitely, indefinitely, excuse me. That will be a separate program to make sure folks have all the detail as to why. Whites only for the rest of this year, perhaps permanently, why that is. The crux of it is not why people are confused about racism. Talk to Dr. Hercula. Let's get to the crux of the problem. And we should be all working on asking white people questions, not sitting around name calling other victims blaming other victims and all the rest of it arguing and squabbling with victims of racism deal with the problem anywho uh, we will be here Thursday cased tomorrow Isabel Wilkerson the origins of our discontents our fourth study session moving right along through the text Uh, again India about to take overtake the United States for the most COVID-19 cases in the world. That's a major theme in the book. India, United States, Nazi Germany will continue tomorrow. Fascinating read thus far. Normal time, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific, uh, and then neutralizing workplace racism on Friday. Anywho, uh, our broadcast for today, words, Neely Fuller Jr. has emphasized for years decades at this point hey words the primary component of white supremacy racism words 
there is a reason we want to be mindful. We heard the word benefit a lot today. Being mindful, being precise about the words that we use. If we are not, sometimes where it happens naturally, that's the way the words work, the way language works as well. People say things, if you are not mindful, you would just end up using the words that they use. So she's saying privilege and benefit. You end up stop saying racism, white supremacy, and just saying yes, privilege, benefits, bias, bigotry, discrimination. Be mindful, be accurate about word usage. Uh, The beginning of knowledge is to call things by their proper name. Hmm. Anywho, uh, let's see. Any of the folks who are with us, any thoughts, observations uh, based on what they heard from Dr. Hercula? Yeah, just needed some clarity on that uh, that idea that white people are more ignorant to uh, racism, white supremacy. And uh, and when a white person gives that that type of answer, it doesn't really make any sense. And uh, it's a uh, suspicion that they are being deceptive also. Absolutely. Gotta be alert for dishonest whites. Uh, That is a common problem, especially when talking about white supremacy, racism. Uh, And that is another reason I would much rather just talk to individuals classified as white. Uh, Then I can assess what they're saying. Are they lying? Are they practicing racism as opposed to I could just be talking to a confused victim? who's not being logical because that's pretty common you know other folks thoughts observations they would like to share can I hear yes sir Uh, I was um, excited for the program especially when I found out she was uh, she had a PhD and was a linguist linguist I can't even say the word (laughs) <laughs> but um, I was disappointed that she didn't have a functional definition for the word nigger. And um, I did, like, question if she was uh, practicing racism. Um, I mean, it is a very, she said she heard the word, you know, and it's a very commonly used word, but she didn't define it and, uh, with a PhD. And you know, it, it, that was just, it was a little frustrating. Um I think she was practicing racism. That's all. I need my line. She probably was. And she even acknowledged on the program. She can't even say, no, I don't practice racism. She can't. No, I'm a white person. Of course. Of course, this is ongoing. So, yes, yes, I felt that way myself repeatedly, even at the very beginning of the program, when I think I had to ask her like four times. Is it accurate or inaccurate? White people collectively are sincere, are often sincerely and greatly pained by racism. Is that a true statement? Yay 
or nay? Shouldn't have to ask a person three times to get an answer to that question. Any other thoughts? Much obliged. Mo in Dallas. Also, I'm, I'm going. Uh, let's see. Let's see. Non Clemson grad. Uh, yes. Um, I'm going so obviously she says she has dedicated her work to trying to figure out how to resolve the issue of getting white people, you know, not to do racism, at least in their linguistic patterns, right? Um, at least when I was asking her questions, um, I pray, at least to me, I was basically comparing her work to Robin D'Angelo, which, you know, has been proven to be, you know, uh, you know, it's, it's crap. Um, it's, what I'm saying is, you know, I was trying to get her to see how it's Essentially, that you know, even though she says she's doing all this work, is she really doing this work to resolve a problem, or is this just one of the things that you know white people do? And you know, the practice or the study of saying you want to do something about racism while getting all the accolades for doing nothing. Uh, at least that was what I was thinking when I was asking her about the kind of work she was. Uh-oh, that sounds like some sort of power failure. Anybody there? Uh, I'm... Oh, I'm here. I'm sorry. I hit a button oh, on my phone. Okay. Yeah, basically, yeah, her work. I was getting at the idea that her work was basically, to me, comes up as Robert D'Angelo's type work, saying that you're trying to do something, you're trying to resolve something, but at the end of the day, when we start actually looking at the people who go through these courses, there is nothing about their inherent behavior, their personalities, um, the thought speech pattern, nothing about them change at all. Racism continues unabated. And that's, and I'll mute my line. Absolutely. They don't have any evidence. Jane Elliott, uh, Robin DiAngelo, the white fragility nonsense. I think some people uh, more recently started to call her out, as you said correctly, calling her out to, hey, I don't think this is as constructive as all the ballyhoo and promotion has said, uh, which it is not. Uh, other folks on the line, I heard Mr. Uh, retired firefighter. Were there, was there anybody else who had a comment that we missed? Comments, observations. I want to say something. Um, what I wanted to say was, um, you know, I'm kind of tired of hearing white people come on the program, not just on the program, but just in general. Um, acting as if, talking as if uh, they really want to solve the problem. And as I'm saying, like, <laughs> it starts with numero uno, it starts with you. If you're not doing what needs to be done, it's like, you know, why do they carry out this facade as if they want change when it's obvious that's, 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 not, that's not it? Um, yeah, it's like this, you know, this uh, this idea of like they're under some, some kind of crusade and they're, they really want to change the world and they're really unhappy the way things are. This is like a bunch of crap. And it just gets very like, you know, like, <laughs> like <laughs> you guys need to stop. You know, if, if you guys, if white people really wanted this problem, as she's calling it, which is not, to me, it's not their problem. But if they really wanted white supremacy to end, it would end immediately. But the fact is, that's not the case. And that's pretty much all I have to say. 
absolutely not the case. Uh, I hope folks get a better understanding of that so that they will develop a much better uh, suspicion of any one classified as white, even if they say they are working night and day to solve this problem and all the rest. What does it mean to be white? at the core of this problem and any notion that they are going to voluntarily cease in the mistreatment of non-white people like uh, what? Do, that's why I ask that question all the time what does it mean to be white uh, let's see anybody else then we can get retired firefighter Uh, just like, you know, um, oh, be black African? My bad. Okay. Sorry. Um, like, I think this, I don't think the guest was a, I don't know, uh, I don't know if she was hiding information or, like, there wasn't any, like, usually sometimes, you know, you'll get one thing from the, the white guest, like some kind of interesting information, but I, really, I can't really say that I remember anything really interesting well this week's guest the the two white i think they're really they they really hid information really well um i think they know a lot more like today's guest i feel like she could have gone i I don't want to say i I think she could have given more information and more um yeah just information about the definition of the term uh nigger like i feel like she could have, you know, because all the other questions she was going into, like, you know, deeper, I guess, you know, providing context and all this other stuff. But she didn't even really go into the history of it, like how it was used or how, like, presidents using it, presidents doing I think she was just hiding information just like I think the, the other guest. Thank you. Much obliged. Uh, the black African uh, racist man, racist woman, uh, they dedicated to racism, white supremacy. I do not expect them to spill the beans, as they say, uh, to give up all of their information to non-white people that would be about the same as them voluntarily desisting from the problem of white supremacy racism uh just go about the business i think one thing victims of racism can do having that in mind that they're probably especially if you're asking about racism white supremacy or even sometimes it can just be pertinent information i think a number of folks have said in a workplace context they've run into the same thing where white people are not giving up information all of a sudden they become really tight-lipped they don't have as much detail noting that continuing to ask questions sometimes you might have to do that even in the workplace setting ask more questions might have to ask the same question over and over again to get the necessary detail but just uh expecting that not being surprised that is a huge component of white supremacy racism not answering questions not giving all of the information that they have to non-white people 
Uh, let's see. Other folks, uh, we get everybody. Uh, um, I do have something else to add to that. If you got time. Uh, I reckon non Clemson grad, then we'll get retired firefighter. Cool. I remember when I was going through college, uh, there was a white female that I was actually friends with. So this is back during like the, uh, before the 2010, even a little bit after, right? This is before I discovered Cal. Um, So we South Carolina, she moved to North Carolina with our, you know, our respective partners. And, you know, at one point I visited her in North Carolina, and then she came to visit me and my wife here in South Carolina. Now, the last time she visited us here in South Carolina was roughly, I think, 2015, maybe 2016. Anyway, when we had the, our last night visiting, we were talking about her profession, which is um, she's a special ed teacher. This is a white female I'm talking about. And uh, she was talking about her students. When she moved, she became a teacher. She wasn't even licensed yet. I think she finished her degree, but she didn't pass the exam that allowed her to become a licensed teacher. But at least in the state of North Carolina, I believe you didn't need a license. And I think it's true for South Carolina as well, too. So anyway, she was telling me that most of the kids that she taught were, you know, special ed students, usually black males, who were having trouble with things like reading and stuff like that. And the way she used to describe um, her, the students that she was teaching with the, you know, these kids, they're really having a hard time and stuff. You know, I understand it and stuff like that because she used to say she had things like dyslexia or something. Now, before that point, I don't remember her ever telling me anything about her having dyslexia or anything like that. But um, basically, as I, that, in that moment, when she told me um, about her, you know, her black male students and stuff like that, I realized that we just could not be friends anymore because it was very clear to me at that point. She only saw the young black males as people, um, young black males as people who just couldn't do better for themselves. They were just well, special ed. That's as good as it gets. And relating that back to Dr. Uh, Hercula, you know, I see that same kind of pattern there, you know, I was practicing racism, and then I, you know, I'm trying to do that. I, I see that same pattern, and I'll leave it at that. Those white female teachers, uh, again, it is not the man. The white woman has a crucial role in maintaining all of this, uh, the system of terrorism, white supremacy, racism, uh, retired uh, firefighter. Uh, I'd much obliged for that story or yeah, life experience, uh, non-Clemson grad. Cause I think, yeah, when we start to get a better understanding of racism, that can do a whole lot to make us, you know, kind of look, take a second look at some of those, uh, relationships, friendships that we have to white people, uh, retired firefighter. Yes. I, I, I was just, uh, thinking that I, I'm going to, uh, uh, make it a practice uh, in my entry to uh, guess, to get clarity uh, from a sexual identification uh, point of view, uh, to get clarity there. Uh, that was my uh, reasoning for the type of question that I asked at the beginning. Uh, because of the uh, trans situation, uh, and we have also had uh, some kind of uh, uncertainty 
uh, even with uh, uh, guests in the pa- in the in the recent past, uh, mentioned uh, about it earlier in the program uh, about mistakes that was made on whether or not a person was white or non-white. I think uh, uh, that that type of situation. Um, yeah, to uh, get clarity from that standpoint, uh, I think is very important because uh, sexual on on uh, on people, uh, especially uh, in the subject matter of racism and white supremacy. Lots of confusion uh, in the system. Racial classification confusion, gender confusion, lots of confusion. That is uh, really supposed to be a core component of counter-racism, minimizing, uh, trying to eliminate uh, confusion uh, so that we have correct understanding about what's happening around us. That works works against the system of white supremacy. They uh, benefit and are that's a major component of what they are about producing confusion so that non-white people don't understand what's happening. Dr. Weathers, why she always said, what's happening? What's happening? What's happening? Racist man, racist woman, make it so that we do not have an answer to that question. So I said, you got, sometimes you have to ask your questions over and over, make sure you get them answered. Even with a, even with a non-white guest. Mm-hmm. Well, that, we don't worry about that anymore. But yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah, not this year anyway. <laughs> absolutely, but yeah, he's absolutely correct. It's is so rampant. He's absolutely correct. You can have a whole lot of victims of racism that do the same thing. Not uh, difference being racist. When we have people like Doctor Hercula. I suspect they're doing it deliberately. That's the difference. Not answering questions and concealing information. Mm-hmm. Victims of mm-hmm. racism is, hey, I, sometimes I think I even might be guilty of it. Just being a victim, we've been exposed to this a lot. And sometimes we're just not paying attention to speak directly to the question that was asked. But it is there. That also is some examples of that in the program, too, where non-white people are doing the same thing. Just we can all be my if you are asking the question. Make sure you get your question answered. We had some good illustrations of that. I was very proud. Several listeners today had to go back. Hey, you did not answer my question, ma'am. Let's let's because that's that's what you got to do. That's the system. I mean, you will probably encounter that again from another white person or a victim. Do the same thing with a victim. Be patient, ma'am, sir. Let's try again. The question I might not have asked it correctly. Might have been my fault, but we'll try again. See if we can get the information. Very common in the system. Uh, any other comments from folks? I, I found it interesting when she uh, she mentioned that, uh, I think the, the fellow's name is Greg, when she said that they were racist and they should be studied. And I'm thinking, why is she speaking about them like she's not racist and that she herself should be studied? I found it very interesting. That racial focal pointing? Because I felt with Greg and with the white males in general, I felt like it, another example of that, just to say that Greg and Tom, these, you know, little group of white dudes that, oh, they're just racist, not going to change their mind, change their mind. They just stuck to their old crusty white male patriarchal view of the world. And wait a minute, you <laughs> like we don't have to. 
letting all the white women off the hook, letting herself off from being indicted as a racist white supremacist. Very, very common. That's why I say we should have a term for that racial focal pointing. And they try and direct it so that it's it's just Greg. It's just Tom. As opposed to we can start right here. Me and my racist family, too. Like growing up, you grow up in a family where they're telling racist jokes that you can't remember. You don't have to look at Greg right with my family photo album. We can go right there to the racists. Any other folks, observations, comments to share? I think that was predicted. Somebody said that when they saw we were going to have a white person on the program, that it was going to be an, an, an example of that, where it would be Trump. That was, I think that was trending on social media right before we went live. Trump is a racist. In my view, that's the same thing. Trump is a racist, not all the rest of the white folks in Congress or the other white presidential candidates or the other white presidents or whoever, the people that voted for him, the 52% of white women voters uh, who were responsible for him being in office anyway. They're not racist. Just Trump. Like, come on. That's ignorance abounds produced by racist man, racist woman, the confusion, inaccuracy about white supremacy, racism, what it is, how it works. Uh, Any other comments folks need to get in? Grand soon folks are satisfied we should be here as i said for the book club tomorrow cased the origins of our discontent uh not discontents it's plural origins of our discontents uh talk about obfuscating and not speaking directly this is another example i uh, that cowbell as well but yeah we'll get to that tomorrow uh neutralizing workplace racism will be on friday 8 p.m eastern 5 p.m pacific uh, lots of folks emailed in. Uh, it was, I, I don't know if it's a COVID-19 thing if people are having to go back to the work, uh, environment or school is back in or what, but a lot of people wrote in about workplace problems for the week. So we'll try and do our best, offer some suggestions and navigate through our emails for workplace racism this Friday, uh, and compensatory call in on Saturday. Uh, much obliged for folks tuning in. Hope it was worthy of your Wednesday evening. Uh, if you have white guest suggestions, drop an email until justice at gmail.com. Again, looking forward to getting better uh, at questioning the problem. Racist man, racist woman, racist child. Uh, and share if you think other non-white people would benefit uh, from hearing the context of white supremacy and getting to rethink some of these ideas, especially if they think some of these well-meaning white people are serious, you know, about solving this problem. Share the podcast, this episode or whichever episodes you think would be beneficial uh, to help spread more accurate information about white supremacy, racism, what it is, how it works, what it means to be white. With that, I think I got in. Glad I asked about the dog. You can see that in the video.
Yes, I think I got in everything I needed for today. I am race. Dr. Welsing, she used to talk about that anagram when you move the letters around in a word and make a new word or words. America, that anagram, I am race. They have a whole lot of those anagram puzzles uh, on Sunday puzzle and puzzle books and things. Anagrams are a large one. That's again, white people are not ignorant about white supremacy, racism. They will get in trouble with other white people, but words they are constantly refining their use their skill their understanding of how to use words to manipulate non-white people and strengthen their system we should be doing the same but with different results in mind replacing white supremacy with justice that's what we're trying to do but refining our use of words with that Sobriety would be best under conditions of white supremacy. We need our brain computer working at maximum efficiency to solve this problem. Uh, In addition to being sober, I'm still of the opinion we should be hunkered down. It's a lot of armed white people. Uh, Many hazards. The fires, the Rona, election season, like lots of things to be worried about. Uh, If you don't have to be out, I would hunker down. If you are going out, it's something important, something essential. I would be super alert, just paying attention to what's happening around you, making sure people aren't getting too close. If it looks like somebody is getting rowdy, especially they're getting loud and it doesn't look like, you know, they have no intention of de-escalation. Like they want to get louder uh, with whatever the problem is. You should be getting out of there. This is not we should be avoiding any sort of verbal altercations really with anybody, but especially white people. Uh, This is not a time to save face, as they say. This is about minimizing risk. Totally get out of there. If it looks like, hey, this thing has gotten out of control or could get out of control. You have lots of armed white people with what's happening right now. No need to take any chances uh, that some white person out talking loud and rowdy might be armed and looking to escalate. He wants to uh, show off his brand new firearm. Forget all of that. Once it looks like, oh, this has gotten kind of volatile. Time to go. We'll try this again another day. I would definitely share that with other folks in the household. If you have offspring or what have you, just not a good time to be taking chances. It's been way too much violence. And, and just sudden, unpredictable violence and hostility outbreaks all throughout the year. So be really mindful if you got to go out uh, again, you're sober. Uh, if you are driving, you are buckled and you are or you, regardless driver, passenger, you're buckled. But if you're driving, you're not on the cell phone. Uh, we need all of our attention, making sure what's happening around us, that we are still in a safe environment. And we're supposed to be trying as best we can to minimize contact with race soldiers, badge or no. Just trying to do the little things, not on the cell phone, paying attention to what's happening. Dangerous times, system of racism. With that, creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people victims of white supremacy we ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves remind us to demonstrate 
the highest levels of black self-respect at all times, in all places, each and every time we are in contact with another black person. It has been time. Replace white supremacy with justice immediately. Cow signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. I'm a victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Uh Even my conditioning has been conditioned. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.